Today I'm presenting the audio from the event in Dallas I did with Christian Picciolini. Christian's written a wonderful book, White American Youth, which recounts his experience as a neo-Nazi and uh, leader of the Hammerskin Nation. In this podcast, we talk about how he got out of the movement, and we talk about the cult-like dynamics of white supremacy, and just the state of things on the extreme right in the U.S. and Europe at the moment. Many related issues, a very long Q&A with the audience. I thought it was a great event. So without further delay, I give you Christian Picciolini. Thank you very much. I have uh, I've never been to Dallas before, so it is a it's an honor. Uh, thank you. I, I I can only say that once, so the, I, you, you won't hear me use that line again. Uh, really, it's an honor to be here, and it's I'm I'm so happy all of you came out. I really think this is going to be a good one. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. My guest tonight became a white supremacist at the age of 14. And uh, yes, well, he agrees with you. <laughs> he became a leader in the, the Hammerskin Nation, which is one of the most violent hate groups in the world. And after leaving that, he became a, he founded a, a group called Life After Hate, which was a nonprofit dedicated to countering racism. He's given a TEDx talk. He's won an Emmy for his role as a director and executive producer of an anti-hate video campaign. He's the author of a really wonderful book, White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. And um, he's been profiled on 60 Minutes. He is a, a guy you should hear more from. So please welcome Christian Picciolini. I would have booed myself too, yes. I think. Yeah. It's yeah, good to be really, back. Really. Well, I've just spent an hour with Christian, and he is like the nicest guy in the world. And when you read his book, which you really must do, you will be astonished at how. I mean, you basically lived like a, a violent psychopath for many years. Uh, <laughs> Let me pour you a long glass of water. Uh, oh, thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> honestly, like the, the level of violence described in this book is quite intense. How, I mean, so you're obviously not a psychopath. Um, how do you explain that chapter of your life? Well, I was recruited in, in 1987 into uh, America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. Um, when I was 14 years old. And you know, most people, I think, think that people who do that come from broken homes and you know, deeply traumatic lives, and they do. Uh, but my life was pretty normal. Um, my parents were Italian immigrants who came to the US in the 60s from Europe, and, and uh, they were the victims of prejudice when they came. So it wasn't you know, the way I was raised. Uh, but I, because my parents were immigrants, they had to work 
seven days a week, 14 hours a day to run a small business, and I never saw them. And at that age, growing up, uh, I wondered what I had done to push them away. So I felt very abandoned, and I was very bullied, uh, and didn't have any friends. So I was searching very desperately for an identity, a community, and a purpose. And one day, at 14, uh, probably at my lowest point, um, a man drove his car in an alley when I was smoking a joint, and he got out of the car, uh, and he pulled a joint from my mouth, and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. Mm. I was 14, I didn't know what the hell a communist or a Jew or what the word docile meant. (laughs) It's true. Uh, But it was the first time that I felt like somebody and he was twice my age, and he w- like somebody accepted me, like somebody was drawing me in, because he would make me feel proud of who I was, and I certainly was proud, um, but I was angry. I was angry at my parents, and I was uh, angry at the world. This, this is inadvertently the best pro-marijuana commercial ever. You should just, <laughs> you should just have kept smoking that joint, and all, none of this would have happened. Oh, my God. So, I mean, so, 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 but I actually, this story even puts more of the onus on you because you, you were not from a broken home. No, I right? wasn't. So you're, you're like a normal kid right. who just had one single conversation. One with, single conversation, but 14 years of feeling very marginalized and, and you know, very much on the fringes. Right. But, but there's so many kids in that position. And, and oh, the, yeah. the thing that one doesn't often think about when one has no connection to groups like this is this phenomenon of recruitment. And I thought, well, we'll talk about this because this is, this is something that you're now trying to counter. And it's, it is, I mean, it's, it's easy to picture if you take five minutes to think about it, but it's, these, these movements do function very much like religious cults. I mean, that, that recruitment is a major feature of, of what's happening. And fear rhetoric, right? Yeah. The idea that if you don't do something, you're doomed. Uh, and there was very much that, uh, you know, it didn't start out that way. At first, it's, when I was recruited, uh, it started out with instilling the sense of European pride that my ancestors were, you know, great warriors and artists and composers. And, you know, I, I grew up in an Italian bubble, so I was very proud of mm. being Italian. Uh, but then it would kind of morph into something a little bit more sinister. It would morph into this idea that somebody now wanted to take that pride away from me. Uh, and then it started to go into naming who those people were, you know, and of course, uh, you know, in the white supremacist movement, they will blame uh, Jews, African-Americans, immigrants, Latinos, basically anybody who's not white, and mm. they will even blame white people. So what, what did you actually believe, and how quickly did you ramp up into believing those things? Well, I literally went from trading baseball cards that week mm-hmm. to, you know, shaving my head, getting a pair of boots... Um, you know, probably tattooing a, a, a swastika on me very quickly. Mm. Um, you know, at first, I faked it. I didn't know what the hell anybody was talking about. I was not political at 14 like young people are today. Um, and I just kind of nodded my head and went along. It was a group of people to hang out with. But the way I got my, most of my indoctrination was through music. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's a brand of music out there that, uh, that at that time was very new to America, so we were listening to bands from Britain and from Germany uh, uh, of racist music made by white supremacists that was propaganda, it was education. Uh, and that's how I got most of my education early on. 
until I took over leadership of that organization at 16 years old because the man who recruited me, who was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader, um, went to prison for a series of violent crimes. Mm. So, yeah, and again, it, it's very difficult to exaggerate the level of violence you guys were involved in. Uh, so it, I mean, it really is kind of a miracle that you didn't go to prison for what you were doing. Yeah. I mean, are we talking about dozens or hundreds of assaults? I mean, how much... How, well, I, I would say hundreds of, of altercations, fights. Right. Some of those were, you know, our group against other groups right. that so were protesting duels, our group. Yeah, people who knew they wanted to get into a fight with you. Right. Yeah, I mean, we had our version of Antifa then. You know, they weren't called Antifa, which is, you know, who is typically protesting these white supremacist groups these days. We had gangs of anti-racist skinheads that we would fight quite mm. often. In fact, we fought white people more than we fought anybody else. Mm. Um, but there were absolutely, you know, dozens of violent attacks against people solely for the color of their skin or who they prayed to or, or who they loved. I mean, it was, we were pretty brutal. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you something. I've, I never met a white supremacist with positive self-esteem. And also, I never met a white supremacist that didn't hate themselves and then use that self-loathing to project it onto other people mm -hmm. so that they didn't have to deal with their own pain. They, if they could make somebody feel worse than they felt, that made them feel better, more superior. So, so now, how much of this was analogous to just being in an ordinary gang and getting off on the, the tribal component of, of power and violence? Uh, quite a bit of it. I would say, uh, you know, for our, during the mid-80s and early 90s, it was very much um, like a gang. Uh, you know, there, were, there was an, a, an identity, an outfit that mm -hmm. we wore. We had our colors. You know, we wore patches to identify us. Um, and we operated in different cities, and we were very organized. Um, but then, as the years progressed, and I think we're seeing a lot of this now, is it became much more organized. Uh, it start, when it started to infect a little bit more of the mainstream with a more palatable message, uh, that's, uh, that's when I think it became much, much more dangerous. Now, did, did you, have you gotten tattoos removed? Is that, uh, that's a component of getting out of this life, I, right? I am almost completely covered in tattoos, but I don't have any of my old tattoos remaining. I've never gotten them removed. I've had them covered over. Uh -huh. Right. I, I, I'm glad to notice that you're not one of those geniuses who got a swastika on his forehead or... I can't tell you how many geniuses I've had to help remove swastikas from their yeah, foreheads. That seems like a... a <laughs> that's a, that's a, you have to be especially certain of your ideology that, to know that you want it on your forehead for the rest of your life. You, you know, if you have to tattoo a swastika on your forehead, you probably don't know very much about your ideology yeah, yeah, to begin with, yeah. I think. I know a very prominent scientist who has the Apple logo tattooed on his bicep and... Uh, so in case he I, forgets. I, I, yeah, I got, I got to think he's, he regrets that now, but someday I'll have him on the podcast. <laughs> so, but, but you, you do downplay the role of ideology, at least in this context, right? It's, it, it is a lot about male bonding and disaffection from the rest of the world yeah. and getting off on violence and not... Yeah, clearly, belief plays a part because you wouldn't know who you hate if you didn't have certain beliefs about white supremacy or the significance of, yeah. of race. Or... The ideology is, is kind of the tie that binds them together. It's the license to be angry, to be violent. It's the projection of, of 
purpose. Mm. Um, but I don't believe that ideology or dogma are what drive most people into hate movements or extremist movements. I really do think it's a broken search for identity, community, and purpose. And those are three fundamental needs that every human being has. Yeah. Uh, we all want to know who we are, where we belong, and, and what we're supposed to do with our lives. And I, I have this theory that I call the pothole theory. If in our lives we hit potholes in the road of life, and we don't have the support or the guidance to navigate around them, like a family structure or friends, uh, sometimes we get stuck in those potholes or we get detoured down a really dark alley. And those potholes can be anything from trauma, could be unemployment, could be uh, mental illness, it could be you know, seeing your father commit suicide at six years old and never dealing with that trauma. Um, if we step in enough potholes, um, our search for identity, community, and purpose becomes very broken. And we, you know, hurt people hurt people. So if, if we are broken people, we tend to uh, attract other broken people. So how did you reform yourself? What was, what was the path out of this? Well, I was involved for eight years. So from the time I was 14 until I was 22, um, 44 now. So I've been out for almost 23 years. And uh, it wasn't one epiphany. It wasn't one, you know, magic moment where I, you know, I woke up, I went to sleep, you know, Sieg Heiling and then woke up saying, I love everybody. It didn't work out mm -hmm. that way. Uh, it was a process of many of those moments. But ultimately what it boils down to is I began to receive compassion and empathy from the people that I least deserved it from when I least deserved it. People that I thought I hated, who I'd never in my life had a meaningful interaction with or a conversation with, uh, began to, even though they knew who I was and what I had done, began to approach me with compassion. And they began to listen rather than talk at me and tell me I was wrong. Hmm. And over time, the demonization that I had in my head, the prejudice, uh, started to become replaced with humanization. And I realized that we had connections that were more similar than they were different. And that culture and language and food from all over the world are things that add beauty. Uh, the differences are, are actually what you know, make us who we are, but it doesn't mean it makes us different than each other. Do you remember a first moment when doubt about your worldview became conscious? There were a lot of those moments, but one of the more powerful moments for me, or the more, more compelling moments for me, uh, was when I was, I believe, 19 or 20 years old, and it was after a night of drinking. There was always drinking involved, um, because we didn't really have the courage to do anything if we weren't drunk. But um, I was at a McDonald's late one night with uh, some friends. It was after midnight, and there were some black teenagers standing in line when we walked in. Uh, and I remember walking into that McDonald's and screaming that it was my McDonald's and that they had to leave. Of course, my language wasn't that kind. Mm. Um, and of course, they were intimidated by us, so they ran out, and we chased them. And uh, as the teenagers, black teenagers were walking across the street, or running across the street, one of them pulled out a pistol and started to shoot at us. And uh, on the second round, the gun jammed. When we caught that individual, we beat him almost to within an inch of his life. And I remember looking down at him when I was kicking him, and his eyes were swollen, and his face was covered in blood. And I remember in one instant, one of his eyes opened and it connected 
with mine. And I felt empathy. I felt like this person who I didn't even think was a, a human being hmm. suddenly could be my brother or my mother or my father. And I, and I thought that it wasn't just about this person or this thing. It was about affecting so many people, uh, what I was doing to this person. And uh, I believe that that was the last time I was violent, uh, even though I stayed in the movement after that. Um, that moment stuck with me. And hmm. it was a moment where, uh, you know, I for years had, had kind of denied myself of empathy and compassion. And for whatever reason, um, that moment, I, I, it came back to me. And mm. it had a very profound effect on me. And mm. uh, I wish I knew who that person was. I don't. Um, Did you subsequently meet any of your victims? Or I mean, it, it, was there a kind of a, a backlog of suffering that came to clear its account with you? Yes, and it happened years, about five years after I left the movement. Um, and it was, a, you know, ser pretty serendipitous. Um, I, when I left in 95, I went through a pretty dark depression. Um, even though I had internally denounced my beliefs, um, I was running away from my past, and mm. I was miserable. And even though I was treating other people with respect, uh, I wasn't treating myself with very much respect. And uh, I remember in 1999, a, a friend of mine, a girl, came to me and she said, you know, I don't want to see you die. Because there were mornings where I would wake up wishing that I hadn't woken up because I didn't know who I was anymore. Mm. And she encouraged me to go apply for a job where she just started working, small company called IBM, may never have heard of them. Mm. And I told her she was, you know, crazy. I said, you know, I'm covered in... Nazi tattoos, I'm, she knew, and I said, I'm a former, you know, Nazi, I went to six different high schools, I got kicked out of all of them, one of them twice, I didn't go to college, I didn't even have a computer, like, what the hell would IBM, you know, want to do with me? And she said, just go in there and tell them that you're good with people, and I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. It's not, the, it's not the first quality that comes to mind. No. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, it was five years after I left. I was a better person, but I didn't believe I was a good person. Anyway, um, I went in, and I had a couple of interviews with IBM, and I miraculously got the job, and I was so, so thrilled uh, because I was going to learn how to network computers and install computers at a large school district mm -hmm. and, uh, until I found out where I would be going for my first day of work. It was my old high school, the same one I got kicked out of twice. Right. IBM had no idea, right. no idea about my past. Um, and suddenly I felt like a nervous first grader going to his first day of school because I thought, I'm gonna walk in, somebody's surely gonna recognize me. I mean, I had held protests, I had tried to form white student unions, I had tried to do, you know, a, a you, disrupted you had had life. violent altercations with oh, teachers. Yeah, yeah, security guards, yeah. teachers, everybody. I mean, it, it was, I was a terror at that school. Mm -hmm. and, um, and who walks by me within the first hour of me being there? Uh, but Mr. Johnny Holmes, the old black security guard, who I got in a fist fight with that got me kicked out for the second time mm -hmm. and let out in handcuffs. Uh, and he didn't recognize me when he walked by, but I, I recognized him. I was kind of, you know, skulking around dark corridors trying to avoid people and looking out. And I just knew that I had to do something at that moment. I, it, there was something inside me. I didn't know what that was going to be, but I decided I was going to, you know, follow him to the parking lot. Uh, probably not a smart, <laughs> smart idea. 
And uh, when I saw him getting into his car, I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, I'm sorry. That's all I could think to say. It's mm-hmm. like all I you know, could muster. And, uh, and he looked at me after taking a step back because he was afraid when he recognized who I was. And uh, he approached me with an extended hand, and, and I finally found some more words to explain to him what I, you know, had done and how I felt and, you know, how sorry I was for, for the terror that I caused him. And, uh, and he hugged me, and we cried, and he made me promise that I would tell my story. And that was in 1999. That's when I started writing my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just came out. It took me a long time to write that book. Uh, but he was the first person to, to kind of pull the courage out of me to, one, confront my past, because I started talking about it pretty immediately after that. I've been doing it for now almost 17 years. Uh, and um, he was the first person, I think, that recognized that this wasn't just a story of some messed up kid who joined a white supremacist group. It was a story of every young person who's searching for identity, community, and purpose, that if we don't give them the right support, you know, and our young people are our most vulnerable, that they could you know, be deviated down this path because there are people looking for vulnerable people like, like I was. Yeah. So how do you think about forgiveness in this case and, and redemption? I mean, both you know, with respect to yourself and with respect to other people, the kinds sure. of people who you're trying to, whose minds you're trying to change. I have to think there are people who are beyond the reach of empathy, right? There, there must be people who you encounter who don't have, I mean, they don't have the handholds that you apparently had where, you know, the right look in the eye or the, or, or the extended hand can be the bridge to a, a new life. I mean, there are, there are people who are genuine psychopaths who are in these movements. So what, how, are you, how do you think about that? That's a tough spectrum? question because if I were to deny empathy for anybody else, that means I would have denied it for myself or that I would have denied somebody else showing me that empathy. Um, so, and, and I've also worked, I've, I've helped uh, over 100 people uh, disengage from neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups over the years. And um, I've worked with some of the hardest, scariest looking, you know, people mm. that nobody would give a chance to, you know, people who were born in the clan families who, you know, have that swastika yeah. tattooed on their forehead. I wasn't kidding about saying I've taken many people right. to have swastikas removed. Um, and these are people that, you know, the whole world has given up on. Uh, and in many cases, they've given up on themselves. And I can tell you there's, these people are some of the best human beings that I know now. They've committed their lives to helping other people not go down the same path that they've gone. Mm. Um, it's a hard question. I mean, trust me, I sit, around, I sit across the table from neo-Nazis and white supremacists all the time. And there are moments where I want to jump across the table and I want to you know, shake them and grab them and you mm. know, smack them. But I know that I can't because that pushes them further away, that the reasons that they even gravitated towards a movement like that is because they already felt marginalized. Um, but I also... Yeah, actually, that brings me to a related question here. Yeah. So what is the role of shame versus empathy? Because I, I think uh, I've heard you talk about this, because it's natural to want to shame people who are in these movements. If it's revealed that, you know, so-and-so is a closet Nazi on Twitter... Everybody they, tries to get it, them fired. Yeah, or, it, seems like, it seems like the sane response is to penalize them for... I mean, just if, at minimum, communicate how reprehensible that is and, and how the rest of the world sees it for good reason, and then 
there should be some consequences for having deviated Absolutely. from the norms of of tolerance that fully. But uh, you, sure. you're very wary of you, uh, of pulling the shame lever. I don't ever pull the shame lever, uh, but I do hold people accountable uh, for their actions, for their words. I make them, you know, go through a process of making amends. You know, when I work with people, um, they don't they they don't always want to work with me, right? Uh, sometimes it's a referral that I get from a parent or a loved one that says, right. you know, my son or daughter is really into this. Will you talk to them? So, so just what are the logistics there? How does that, I mean, are you just sitting in the living room when the kid comes <laughs> home from school? <laughs> uh, let me try and think. If I'm, no, it's, it's always voluntary. So I'm not uh -huh. deprogramming. I'm not doing interventions in a traditional sense where I'm like, you know, surprising them in a room full of their family and saying, right. all right, we need to talk and we're going off to treatment after this. It's not right. like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I really, I try and build rapport, right? I try and build trust. Um, the fact that I, I understand their language because I used to say it uh, is helpful. Um, I'm, I may be a little desensitized more than the average person to some of the things that they say. That doesn't mean it doesn't make me angry, but you know, I, I can sit and maybe listen just a little bit longer. But that's the key is I listen. Hmm. Rather than tell them that they're wrong, rather than debate them or argue with them, which never solves anything. Nobody's ever, you know, changed because of, you know, a shouting match. But uh, I listen, and I listen for those potholes, and then I become a pothole filler. Uh, so when I hear, you know, chronic unemployment, I, I pair them up with a life coach or a job trainer. When I hear trauma or abuse, uh, it's, you know, mental health therapy or mental illness, it's mental health therapy. And I'm trying to make people more resilient, and it's fascinating when you start working with somebody and they feel, start to become more resilient and more, have more self-esteem, they have less of a reason to blame the other for something that they feel is taken away because now mm -hmm. they might be a little bit better equipped to deal with life. But I don't stop there because I do challenge the ideology, uh, but I do that in a, in a non-aggressive way. I will introduce people to the people they think they hate. Right. So I've spent hours with Holocaust deniers and Holocaust survivors, Islamophobes and you know, Muslim families just to, to allow them to humanize because nine and a half times out of ten, they've never ever in their lives met the people that they think that they hate. So the demonization becomes replaced with the humanization. And, uh, and it works. It's the yeah. only thing that works. Yeah. yeah, it's... it's it's somewhat ironic that it always seems to be the Jews and none of these people have ever met Jews. I mean, it's like there's 15 Jews in the world. And <laughs> it's, uh, I think they're all my friends yeah, now. Yeah, though, and half of them are Buddhists now. <laughs> uh, so so I, I want to talk about the status of, of this movement now in the U.S. and Europe. And So maybe let's start with the the alt-right, which is a phrase that, I don't know when it was coined, but uh, you know, none of us knew it. Yeah, uh, I'm not a fan a of, ago. Yeah, of that so. phrase or, or the phrase white nationalism because I know that those are phrases that they literally sat in a room and said, what can we call ourselves to make us seem a little less hateful? And this is good to nail down. I mean, clearly, I think there's, there's, there has to be a, a spectrum of belief and a spectrum of, of ideological commitment, and there, there must be people who are happy to be a part of something, but they don't know what they're a part of. And uh, you and I were talking backstage, it's kind of analogous to Scientology, where mm -hmm. you can become a Scientologist 
And I mean, it's not so true now after South Park and all of these outings of the actual doctrines. But before South Park and before uh, Going Clear and some of these other uh, books and movies, you could have been a Scientologist for a very long time without knowing just how crazy the doctrine was. So there, there, are, there are analogous situations in the, the white nationalist or you know, white power sure. movement where you just, you've been indoctrinated uh, into something that's like white identity politics, for lack of a better word, just like just pride in your whiteness and not, not liking affirmative action, say. Yeah. And you, you might not even be self-consciously a racist. And you were among these people who at a certain point, had formed a conscious plan to, be, to go under the radar, right? So just yeah. to well, say something it, about that. At first, it wasn't a conscious plan to go under the radar. At first, it was very much like a cult where you detach yourself from everything that was important in your life, you know, your friends, your family, your hobbies, and you go down a rabbit hole of information, uh, misinformation, uh, and conspiracy theory that becomes your reality. And I can tell you that 30 years ago, we recognized exactly what you're saying, that we, you know, we were a small group that was too visible. And we said, you know, these, these average American white racists who we want to recruit are getting turned off by the fact that we have swastikas on our foreheads, right? Or we have boots or shaved heads and we're talking, you know, very, um, you know, much about foreign kind of politics and, mm. you know, national socialism. So we made a very concerted effort uh, 30 years ago to normalize. We said we're going to ditch the shaved heads and the clan robes, and that's still around, but for the most part not. Uh, and we're going to trade in our boots for suits. We're going to go to college campuses to recruit where people uh, are away from their families for the first time, are forming new opinions, may feel marginalized. We're going to get jobs in law enforcement. We're going to go to the military and get training, and we're going to run for office. And that's around the time that you know, we see David Duke kind of get rid of the robe and wear the suit. And here we are 30 years later, and it's, it's very much that is the representation of, of the white supremacist movement that we're seeing today. Mm. You know, the polos and the khakis and the, and the haircuts. And, and we, we decided to even take the language and make it more palatable, right? So instead of saying, you know, the global Jewish conspiracy that controls us all, we just started calling it globalization, uh, and we started saying things like, you know, the liberal media instead of the Jewish media, terms that now some people are calling dog whistles. To me, they're a bullhorn. I hear these things, and, and in context, um, I know exactly what's being told when, you know, they're showing a picture of George Soros's face, who is like enemy number one to the far right. Um, but it has seeped into mainstream society where I think a lot of people are identifying with some of the same things that, that these white supremacists are, but don't know that they're being led down that path. Right. Because it is a ramping up process, uh, you know, a normalization, and then bam, once you're in, you know, you've already got the stigma. They know you can't leave. They know that, you'll, that you will get the threats, that you will be outed. So what do you have to go back to? It's like drugs. Mm. It's like a drug dealer. So, so let's talk about the gradations of commitment here. I mean, so what does the landscape of, of white supremacy look like in the U.S. now? It's hard to say because it's, it's hard to see. Um, we have people like Richard Spencer we, who yeah. have been in the news. And we have kind of the pseudo-intellectual, you know, Richard Spencers and the Jared Taylors of the world who, you know, wear the Brooks Brothers suits and look like professors. And, and uh, you still have skinheads, you know, like I used to be. 
Uh, but in between there is like this whole, you know, I can't see the audience right now, but they probably look a whole lot like you. I mean, there are dentists. There are mm. some of our police officers. They're certainly in our military. There was a recent study uh, of active uh, service uh, members that were polled about the instances of white supremacy that they saw. Like, I'm not just talking about racism, but like organized white nationalism as we would think. One in four people in the military said that they see it on a regular basis. It's mm. 25%. Uh, I mean, there's so many people that I've worked with that were recruited in the military by people like me. Um, and I can't tell you how many people from my old organizations actually became police officers and prison guards and things like that. It's absolutely... And, and, and did that not having reformed themselves? That wasn't their way out? They were just... They had the same beliefs and they were... They're they were still the of, same people, right. just much older. Huh. Yeah. So how does Europe... There's, there's, a, there's a kind of marriage between these movements in Europe and, and yeah. there's a kind of a global phenomenon. What, what's happening there? It, it's very similar. I mean, it's certainly... Uh, Europe has a longer history with this. Uh, obviously, you know, after World War II, you know, there were many years of kind of resurgence of nationalism and then kind of the, the tamping down of it. But now we're seeing a, a massive resurgence in populism and, and nationalism. Uh, that you know is using the refugee crisis and immigration as as kind of the crux of of their message, and and they know that it's an easy message to spread to mm. spread, uh, because the minute you know a, a brown skinned person does something horrible, it's terrorism, and we scream about it, and every news is covering it for you know days on end. Uh, but how often have we ever heard you know white supremacist uh, killings being called terrorism? Never, right? I'm not aware of any time where white extremism, maybe except for the Timothy McVeigh Oklahoma City bombing, where white extremism has been called terrorism. And and most people don't know, but Timothy McVeigh was very much a white supremacist. He hung around at Aryan Nations and and, uh, was found with a copy of the Turner Diaries and one of the vehicles, which is a a Bible for white supremacist revolutionaries. Um, But we just don't call it out as that. We call it, you know, mental illness, which many times it is. but we don't call it terrorism. Uh, even though it's ideologically based, it's, it's meant to incite terror uh, and uh, it has all the same hallmarks of, of ISIS. In fact, there's really no difference between ISIS and, and American neo-Nazis, except for the fact that white supremacists in America kill three times more people than hmm. any kind of foreign or domestic terrorist group does on American soil. 74% of all extremist killings in America since 9-11 have been... Uh, committed by white supremacists. So how is Oklahoma City viewed in the white supremacist community? I mean, is, that, is that just an unambiguously good thing to have happened, or is that going too far? I mean, is that, I mean, no, is, they celebrate it. Yeah. They celebrate it, and they've tried to copycat it many times and have been stopped. Uh, coincidentally, it was on April 20th, uh, April 19th, actually, the day before Hitler's birthday, mm-hmm. which is a very uh, special day for white supremacists. Uh, a lot of school shootings happen on April 20th. I believe Columbine happened on, on April 20th. Uh, it's a, it's, it is a... Those types of stories are what a lot of people who've been moved further down into the movement and who've lost a lot kind of aspire to do. Uh, you know, we were trained and we were training people to become these race war revolutionaries. We were stockpiling weapons. We were going into training camps to, to get paramilitary training. Uh, you know, there was even at one point, um, 
uh, where uh, a group from Tripoli, from Libya, had come to contact me, mm. or so I thought, to, uh, to set up a meeting between me and Muammar Gaddafi because he wanted to funnel money to American groups who were fighting Jews in America. Uh, so it's just a matter of time, and I've been predicting this for years, I, I believe it's just a matter of time before we see white supremacist groups uh, from Europe and the U.S. starting to work with, uh, with extremists from the Middle East. Mm. Because if you think about it, while it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you'd think they'd hate each other, um, they have a common enemy that is greater than their hate for each other. Just gets better and better for the Jews, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm going to have to call some of my friends. We're going to have to turn up the pressure on that Zionist banking conspiracy. <laughs> you know that doesn't exist, right? Check your bank accounts, people. <laughs> so, yeah, so what's the what is the connection to Russia? This is oh, you, know, boy. you know half of what you say here, or or all of what you say, may sound like a conspiracy theory to yeah. anyone who's on the right wing here. But oh, what, yeah. what, what was what has your what's been your experience looking for a connection between white supremacy and Russia in, in the U.S.? So I, I believe I have, I may have been the first kook screaming about Russian collusion way back before the words Russia and collusion were put together. Um, I, was, uh, I was working with a 17-year-old girl. The parents had contacted me because they were concerned about this girl who was making, their daughter who was making um, you know, white supremacist propaganda videos, recruitment videos, and she was becoming quite popular online. Uh, so they called me in and they said, you know, we're, we're really worried. We just discovered this and we, mm. we know that she's being influenced by this 23-year-old boy who lives in Idaho. She was in Florida and he was in Idaho. And, uh, you know, supposedly he was a German-American uh, boy who, you know, was a, a devout neo-Nazi and had recruited her and was her boyfriend and had started to get compromising photos from her. And... Uh, he was not, I could tell you, after many hours and days of research, not a 23-year-old German-American living in Eagle, Idaho. Mm. He was a 35-year-old Russian man living in St. Petersburg. Uh, and he was not only befriending this girl as her boyfriend, but he was doing it to at least a dozen other young girls as young as 14 years old, mm. trading, you know, getting photos from them that were inappropriate, uh, and then using it to blackmail them. Uh, so I started to get really seriously into this because there was a crime being committed. And, and th this is 2016? This, this was October, I'm sorry, this was August of 2016. So before the, you know, before the election. And as I started to dig into this guy, uh, I discovered that he was part of a ring of people that were very connected. And I found connections dating back to like 2010 that proved this. Uh, that had created tens of thousands of fake social media profiles. And, uh, you know, they were all very neo-Nazi and, and pro-Trump, and I started to really just track them, and I'm like, what the hell is this phenomenon? Why are all these, like, Trump voters, like, all of a sudden, like, you know, having Make America Great Again hats with a swastika on it, and, you know, having avatar or names like Himmler? And mm -hmm. So I started to track them, and I started to see this group form and then I started to notice that their screen names and pictures were changing from white supremacist accounts to ISIS accounts. And then some of them would change to Black Lives Matter accounts. And then some of them would change to feminist accounts. With, and I started to see that the intention was just to 
put as much hateful information against these other groups out there to create this discord. And I started to pinpoint people. I actually found who the Russian guy was. He made a mistake in 2009 where he made a post using a screen name that he was still using, but it was attached to his real name. Mm. This was before, apparently, he went to go work for the FSB in Russia, where he graduated in linguistics at, from the University of Moscow. Right. Um, so I went to the FBI in October of 2016, and I said, you know, I, there's something weird going on. I'm not quite sure what the hell is going on, but everything was pointing to Russia, because at that time, I had presented this information to the parents and to the girl, and I said, first of all, this guy is not who you think he is. He's a you know, bad guy, and he's this guy. His name's Mikhail, you know, whatever his last name was. And she didn't believe me, uh, so she leaked the information to her boyfriend. Within three hours of me leaving that house, uh, 75 domain names that I own, that I run for my you know, nonprofit, for myself, my parents, and you know, the restaurant, were all hacked by Russian malware. Within three huh. hours, 75 domain names. And I went to the service providers and I said, you know, what, the, what is going on? And they said, we've never seen an attack like this. Um, so at that point, I went to the FBI, this, again, still October 2016, and I said, you know, I've got 33 gigs of screenshots, videos, chat conversations, you know, phone calls, because now I was starting to antagonize these people to try and get more information. And I handed it over to them, and they said, thank you very much. We're uh, busy reading Hillary's emails right now. We'll get to it. <laughs> we'll get to it when we get to it. And then, you know, I said, really, you should really look at this before election day, because I think there's something going on here. And uh, I still haven't heard from them, so who knows. But now it's starting to come out that all that information that I found is actually, you know, being validated. Right. So, yeah. They love Russia. I don't know why. Yeah, so that, what, what is this connection with Russia yeah. and Putin? So, you know, the white nationalist or alt-right movement that we see today has a very strong connection to Russia. They revere Putin. He's a strong man, you know. Uh, they see him as, as like this eth ethno-nationalist uh, dictator. Um, and in fact, many neo-Nazis from Europe are going to train in paramilitary style in Russia and then going to fight on the Ukraine border. Mm. Um, funny enough, and, and this, you know, I, don't, I can't substantiate it, but coincidentally, so many of the propagandists for the American white supremacist movement are really beautiful Russian girls who speak perfect English, mm. who um, are now starting to be found out. There, were, there was an article published today, there was another one yesterday about a teacher uh, teaching grade school who was teaching kids about white supremacy. Uh, and then she had a double identity where she was bragging about the fact that in school she was teaching kids. She was found out to be, have a third identity, which was mm -hmm. Russian. Uh, but yeah, it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's so much that Russia is supporting this ideology or if they're just trying to create this movement of discord that they know is our weak spot. Yeah. Frankly, racism in America is something that we've never really dealt with. Every, every society that's faced a genocide, let's say, like slaves or African-Americans did during slave times, have somehow dealt with it, right? They've acknowledged it and they've worked through it. We've never, I don't believe, really acknowledged that we ha have had mm -hmm. that problem in our country, um, at least not from the top. I mean, I think we, t you know, you go to the South, like here, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think we learn about 
uh, the Civil War a little bit differently than we did in Chicago, right? In Chicago, in the North, y'all were the bad guys, <laughs> right? And to you down here, it was Northern aggression, right? We learn about it differently. So right. even in our own country, we're like propagandizing our history. So I don't know that we've ever fully dealt with the issues that our country's had. Hmm. Well, what do you think the solution is at the level of our public conversation at this point? And we take like social media and the fake news problem and the, and the way in which this phrase fake news has been weaponized against real news so that right. you, can, you can say fake news about anything that you yeah. don't like and it, and it, it seems to be an, an adequate retort to yeah. whatever's being expressed. I even hate using it even though it's true, it exists, yeah. but I hate even calling it what it is uh, because of that. You know, I think the biggest thing under attack right now is truth. And once we lose it, it's gone. Because what do we, what's our, our benchmark? Yeah. And I'm terrified of that because, you know, the truth has to exist. There has to be something that we can hold on to. But, you know, what's happening in, in America today? What I would suggest is, you know, we're at a point where we're screaming from the extremes right now. We're, we're being made to choose a side, really. And screaming to try and get to the middle doesn't work. I think we need to start in the middle and acknowledge the things that we have in common, the fact that we're Americans, the fact that we love our children and want them to be healthy and have a good education, that we want you know, uh, fellow Americans to have jobs and we want to have a good economy. Those are all things that we can agree on. Pretty much anywhere in the world where you go and you ask them what's the most important thing to you, that's what they'll say. I want a job, I want my health, I want my kids to be happy. But you could, you could actually even start a conversation with a, a current white supremacist and get agreement on those values. Oh, sure. Values. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And if we start there, eventually we'll go off track, but we um, will have established that humanization that we can always go back to. If we start from the, the extremes and try to get to the middle, we never get there. We have to find a way to start in the middle again. Let's acknowledge what we have in common, what we want America to be, and then let's work, let's work from there. Let's listen to each other more than anything yeah. else. Well, I'm increasingly worried that the left is fully capable of making a catastrophe of this. Oh, yeah. Because the, the, the swing into identity politics in many cases seems to be all the justification a white supremacist would need to, to sure. indulge his or her own white identity politics. Oh, absolutely. Right. When you know, somebody on the left attacks, uh, first of all, you know, can we just stop calling Republicans Nazis because yeah. they're not yeah. Nazis? That word has a or, very powerful ben, ben meaning. Ben Shapiro gets called a Nazi. Ben Shapiro's an Orthodox Jew and he gets called a Nazi. <laughs> That said, I can't tell you how many parents email me and say, we're Jewish, but my son is involved in this, and I'm worried he's going to be the next Dylan Roof, like I'm seeing signs mm -hmm. of this and that. This is, it's a social movement, folks. It's, that's why I don't believe it's about ideology. It's about this identity, community, and purpose. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, our young people right now, we're failing them. Uh, we, you know... They can't afford college if they're lucky enough to even be able to attempt to go. There, there's no guarantee of a job after graduation. Our whole country is in a state of you know, division and turmoil right now where you know, people who used to get along can't even look at each other, and I'm talking about relatives even in some cases. Hmm. Uh, what is there to look forward to for them? And I'm, 
I'm confused. As an adult, I can't imagine what a 14, 15, 16-year-old is going through. Um, So I think we are failing our youngest people, and because they feel lost, many of them are gravitating to some of these very ideological movements because they're idealistic, they're passionate, but they may have marginalization issues, and they may, you know, hear something that resonates to them. Um, And it's a scary time because I am seeing a lot of young people who normally wouldn't be attracted to these types of, of, you know, extremist ideologies uh, start to go there. And and I'm talking about, you know, a young white girl from middle America who flies to Syria to join ISIS and also the young, you know, white boy who decides to walk into a church and and murder, you know, nine innocent people because Mm -hmm. of the color of their skin. Um, Well, what was the significance of Charlottesville? Has that been amplified just because of our current political obsession, or was it as significant as people who are worried about it seem to think? I, you know, I spent a week in Charlottesville just recently, and I, and I spoke to really all the players that were involved, from community members to uh, Heather Heyer's mother, the young woman who was killed, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, the white supremacists in town, to the law enforcement. To I spoke to everybody. And, you know, very much what you said earlier, and I don't think we touched on it, where the left is maybe enabling some of this, uh, right now, the fear from the community, even though it's a progressive community, is, you know, of the protesters and not the white supremacists. Mm. Uh, I don't know that that's very grounded in reality, uh, but, you know, the left shoots themselves in the foot when they adopt the same tactics that, of the people that they're, that they're protesting against. Yeah. So when we see violence come from the left, or when we see attacks of hate come from the left, or you know, their only mission is to destroy white supremacists' lives, that's not helping the situation. You know, I, I tend to want to draw them in closer because they went that way because they felt pushed away to begin with. Pushing them away is not going to make them any happier. It's going to actually entrench them more into this ideology and this, and this fear of, of having lost something. And they use that as a narrative. They spin it. So when they're attacked, they become the victims and they use that. Right. You know, we were just there for a free speech rally. We were just there for a Unite the Right rally. See these really innocuous terms that they like to put on rallies? It was not about free speech. It was not about Confederate monuments. It was about going into a progressive place intentionally to uh, elicit a violent response. Right. Because they knew the tension was there. And they got it. And the minute that they were attacked they became the victims. You see how our rights are being taken away? You see how white people are being treated in this country? That's their intention. They go to progressive places on purpose. That's why we heard about the Berkeley rally. That's why we heard about Charlottesville. Mm. That's why they go to college campuses. That's why they went to Skokie and marched in a Jewish neighborhood in the 1970s, you know, the American Nazi party. They do that to provoke, the, to provoke violence. Right. Two things that they love, silence and violence. When we're silent, Sweep it under the rug, they grow. Mm. When we're violent, they use it as a narrative. Yeah, there's another even more insidious aspect to this, which is something that Steve Pinker pointed out recently. Actually, it was an amazingly kind of compounding irony because his pointing this out, so he was on a panel somewhere, and he made the point that I'm about to make, but then that got chopped up by some leftist imbecile to make him sound like he was endorsing the alt-right. And, you know, I mean, it's this sort of compunctionless vilification of people that is the, the real virus here. But so it, the, Steve's point was that 
the problem with silencing free speech on the on the left, which is why you know, if, if you hear that there was some demonstration at a college campus tomorrow that forced some invited speaker to not give his or her speech, and that people were spit on, and that the event couldn't happen. It's like 99% a leftist phenomenon now. I mean, this is what the left is doing on college campuses. And Steve's point was that the problem with not letting conservative and even right-wing views get expressed in, on college campuses is that you don't, and, and, and any taboo view, whether it's you know intelligence and race and you know the gender differences, I mean whatever is considered a third rail in, in intellectual life now, the problem with not letting these views get discussed honestly and at length is that people, first of all, are, are these certain truths are, are being concealed and certain conversations are being deemed off limits, and people aren't developing intellectual antibodies to the bad ideas that get accreted around these topics. And so if for the first time in your life you're hearing what seems like perfectly honest talk about IQ, say, but it's coming from someone like Jared Taylor, mm -hmm. right? Well, then you're on this grease slide into being indoctrinated into this kind of racist worldview. And, and it's a, it's the primacy of free speech has to be such an obvious value for the left. And the fact that we're losing sight of it is, uh, is really the, the most worrisome thing here. It, it's disturbing to me that in many cases the left is adopting, and when I say the left, I mean, that's a pretty vague term, right? We're talking about like radical left for the most part. When they adopt the same tactics, of their enemies, do they really become any different than those people? In many cases, what, what, you're, what you're seeing is the, the, the door on the, on the left is closed to anyone who makes any kind of sense on taboo topics. I mean, the, 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 the classic case is, uh, and this, you know, this is perhaps we should spend a moment on this because there, this is a sign, uh, a very troubling sign of the of the moral confusion that the left is capable of. So you take a group like the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which used to be, I'm sure they imagine they still are, this flagship organization, which is like the last bulwark against the you know, white nationalism and Christian identity and all of this craziness we've been talking about. You know, they, they're the people who sue the KKK and, and destroy these, the, the chap, these chapters of their organization. But now they have put people like Majid Nawaz, who you know, and Ayan Hirsi Ali on lists of anti-Muslim extremists. And uh, they just put Christina Hoff Summers, this slightly right-of-center academic philosopher, on some list of, of, of bigotry. This is, I mean, this is completely confused. And when you challenge them, I mean, you know, Majid is, is suing them. And, but, but prior to announcing anything about a lawsuit, I mean, suing them first, we should acknowledge, because this is da it's dangerous to put... Muslim reformers and ex-Muslims on lists of, of any kind, but a list of anti-Muslim extremists, right. you know, it's, it's, putting a, it's putting a target on their backs. And it's just incredibly pernicious because journalists use the, the, the SPLC as a resource. I mean, like, they're just trying to figure out who's who. Right. You know, is, this, is Richard Spencer really a, a Nazi or not? The, the first call goes to a group like that. Right. So 
this is not only objectionable, it, it, it is dangerous behavior. And the problem is no one admits errors here. It's like, like the, the, the person who did this at the SPLC has been contacted endlessly. I mean, I tweeted this, and Madhu tweeted this, and Ion tweeted this, and it, it continues, and people just double down. People do not admit. I mean, you, you have to spend five minutes on Majid before you realize this is not a, an right. anti-Muslim extremist. Right. Right? First of all, he's a Muslim. Right? Right. He's, a praise, he, he's, not, he's not even an ex-Muslim. Yeah. And we have the luxury of both knowing him personally yeah. uh, and didn't know that until tonight. But yeah, yeah no, I, I would agree with that. I mean, Majid is, is a, is, his story is a lot like mine. I mean, he's a former, you know, Extremist. He's not only a former, not only not an anti-Muslim extremist, he was a former Muslim extremist. Right. You know, he's, he has a long way to go before he becomes an anti-Muslim extremist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think part of the problem, uh, you know, let me just preface this. I, you know, I, I've respected the SPLC's work because I do trust their work. But I think that the, the kind of the arena has gotten so blurred now that it's easier to call somebody, you know, a member of a hate group or to call, you know, an organization a hate group uh, if they're talking about something that maybe is uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, I know Majid. I know he's, he's, he doesn't hate anybody. I know he's not, you know, running a hate group. Uh, and it's unfortunate that he was added to that list. I really, you know, I was very surprised and I even communicated to him uh, when it happened that, uh, you know, it was like astonishing to me mm -hmm. that that could happen. Um, you know, I don't know what to say about that other than it's a mistake that they made. My, he uh, should be added to the list of extreme dressers. I don't know if he is know. a great dresser, he, yes, isn't he? Just, whoever wears a pocket square should be on some list. <laughs> uh, that's, it's that British colonialism, yeah, I think, that yeah. rubbed off on him. <laughs> He's a sharp dresser. But yeah, no, it's tough. I mean, there, there are a lot of groups out there. The Anti-Defamation League, I think, you know, is a pretty trusted source for monitoring hate groups. And, and you know, they make mistakes too. I mean, mm -hmm. they came out uh, when the attack in Parkland happened at first uh, with Nicholas Cruz, uh, and they were essentially fooled by far-right trolls into believing that he was a neo-Nazi. And then it came out that he really was a neo-Nazi, that, you know, there was a swastika carved on the cartridge of the magazine and mm -hmm. that, you know, he, there were posts in Instagram chats that were. So they, in that case, they made a mistake that ended up being correct. Uh, but, you know, it, it's hard to say, you know, what went into that decision or what goes into uh, decisions. All I can look is history of, of what they've done. You know, they've, they've managed to bankrupt white supremacist organizations like the White uh, Aryan Resistance and you know, they've done amazing work to, to try and dismantle white supremacy in the country, but, you know, it's clear that, right. that they're also uh, fallible. Yeah, yeah, well, on that note, I, I want to open it up to questions from all of you, because from people in my view, the, the reason to do these events is to make it a proper conversation. At there some you point. are. So, oh, yeah, awesome. Nice to see ah, you there's all. there's people up there, too. So there are, there are two mics. There should be two mics, left and right. And... Um, Sorry to anybody who had a hangover and just had bright lights. Yeah. Like <laughs> and I should say, so before we start, uh, I uh, would encourage you to, to make your question actually a question. And this is not so much for... Short. Yeah, and short. Um, <laughs> this is not so much for the way I feel up here, but, at the, but the way you feel when you feel the ire of all of your 
fellow audience members raining best. down on you. Well, I'll skip my long tirade about yeah. vegetarianism, but you had mentioned the concept of dog whistles and how groups are becoming very sophisticated and how they align their language mm. to kind of sneak it in. Right. So how do all of us get attuned to navigating that space of this is okay, this is kind of scary, this is really scary, help us out. Yeah. Thanks. Develop our critical thinking skills again. Uh, it's hard because their intention is to make it as normal as possible to use language that's hard to decipher. I mean, that's their trick. Um, and we, weren't, we were good at it in the 80s, but we weren't as good at it as they are now with the internet. Um, because, you know, there's so much information out there. It's really hard to, to know what to believe, what to trust. But, but, so, but sometimes a dog whistle isn't a dog whistle, right? So, for instance, there are people who are worried about globalism sure. who don't know that someone they like that, you, you, yeah. your former self was talking about globalism with this as like consciously Like Megyn Kelly, connected. for instance. Exactly, yeah. So you just had, you just had to <laughs> perform an exorcism on Megyn Kelly. Yeah, I was uh, on she, the... she didn't realize that, she, that, that Satan had, had found a home in her brain. I, I, was on, uh, I was on her show recently, and we were talking just about this specifically in Dog Whistles, and I said, you know, when, when we hear these terms, you know, we have to understand that many times they're, it, they're not using them to talk about the actual thing. They're using it to draw people in and then spin it to turn it into kind of this white genocide narrative. And she said, but, you know, I've been using terms like globalism and, and, and you know, liberal media since I was at Fox News. And I said, aha, you see? The power of the mainstreaming. Uh, and the internet kind of went crazy over that. But it's true. I mean, they are intentionally fooling people with, through fear rhetoric. So take aside global, you know, globalization and globalism and, and liberal media, which, you know, I think have valid, you know, meanings. Uh, but when you, start, when you start to make people afraid through misinformation that white culture is, is being destroyed, it's not. Let me tell you that, right? Most of the people in power are white males, right? Not secret Jewish, you know, cabals of, of uh, you know, it, they're using fear rhetoric to, to feel like something's being taken away from people. They're, they're, they're screwing with statistics. I mean, one of the reasons why Dylan Roof walked into that church and murdered those people is because he Googled, uh, after the Trayvon Martin incident, he Googled black on white crime statistics and he landed on a website that had this really innocuous name, the Council of Conservative Citizens, right? Republican organization. No, they're not. They're a white supremacist organization that put up fake statistics about black-on-white crime that inflated them tremendously. Right. And he felt compelled to become, you know, to go in and, and punish people because of that. Um, so we need to be very, very careful. I don't know uh, specifically what the right answer is, what we should be looking for, except to, we need to be better critical thinkers. We need to, you know, we need to yeah. just look at things better and, and really acknowledge that we make mistakes. I I've tweeted, retweeted things that, that were you know, fake news before, and I felt like a fool doing that too. We just need to be more careful and not trust everything that we hear. Mm. Okay, we're here. I just want to say thanks so much for the conversation. I think these, um, you know, like the Eric Weinstein term, the intellectual dark web, these types of long-form conversations. I was really struck, Sam, when you said that I'm just struck by the news organizations. There's all these labels thrown about. And what you said about when you label something, you're able to create an enemy. 
But when we sit yeah. down and have these conversations, and when I think of my friends, I don't think of them as labels, right, alt-right, anything. I think of individual beliefs. What do we feel about abortion or whatever separate topics? But yeah. the broad, um, most of the people that are listening to the mainstream news, CNN, Fox, pick your left or right, it doesn't matter. These labels are tossed all over the place. And yeah. so, yeah. you know what I mean? And so instead of, instead of it being a long form conversation, this is why I love these things. This is why I'm here. I travel six hours to be here. I listen to the podcast all the Thank time. You. Because awesome. these long form conversations are where we actually get into the meat of this, where we're not just creating enemies by tossing out labels. Yeah. Just and curious. I just—I know still a thousand people wanting you to ask a question. So, but th thank you for coming. Yeah. Yeah. How do we? How do we get to those people that aren't listening to the intellectual dark web? Hey, you know what I mean. Yeah. How do we reach out from the people that are here to get out to, you know, yeah. more mainstream? Well, I think it's a, I mean, first of all, I, uh, this phrase, intellectual dark web, is, uh, you know, it's not a phrase I, I, I have imbued with much seriousness. I, Eric Weinstein used it on uh, my podcast, and then I titled the podcast I did with him and, and Ben Shapiro, uh, but it was, it was always a little tongue-in-cheek, although now, the, now there's a New York Times article being written about it, and so people are, are taking this seriously. It's... It's not a bad analogy. I mean, what, what it is, is at least the, the justification I would give it is that there are some of us who, there are some people who just don't have any kind of mainstream media contact who still have a lot of influence, right? Who, who have their own podcasts. I mean, is it someone like Dave, Dave Rubin or Joe Rogan? I mean, Joe Rogan re reaches so many more people than m most television shows, right? I mean, just, you know, he, he reaches tenfold the, the audience that CNN does at primetime, right? So it's just, and, and the mainstream media doesn't really know about this, it seems. So uh, in that sense, these conversations are already reaching millions and millions of people. And, uh, you know, I think very much for the better because the people having these conversations, at least in those contexts, are not so guarded and not so worried about blowback that they that they're not speaking honestly anymore. And, and, and the format is relevant. The fact that a podcast doesn't have a time limit, right? right? That, you know, Joe can go for four hours, and I, you know, I can go for three hours, and it, the, the conversation can just meander, that dictates a different kind of exchange of ideas. And so I think it's, it, it is, it's working in a way. And there are many of us who have a foot in, in both Full worlds. Sense. And, you know, I can publish an op-ed in the New York Times or I can have some truly mainstream person who is probably worried about his reputation, somebody like Fareed Zakaria, on my podcast, and you know, lure him down the primrose path and into having a more unguarded conversation than he usually has. And people are, are very happy, it seems, at least at this point, to do that. And so it's, I think it, it, is, it is happening, it is working. It's going to take time. Yeah, and it's working by virtue of the fact that people like yourself are listening to the podcast and driving six hours to come to an event like this. So, so thank you. My name is Hunter. Um, so uh, I'll skip my long prologue about uh, how great, grateful I am for you guys to come to Dallas. Yeah, thank and, you. And thank you so much yeah. uh, for everything you do, Sam. Thank you. 
And I'll go ahead and skip right to uh, a question that you actually asked Christian, but I, but I would interest, I mentioned your, your perspective on it. Uh, so when thinking about how to criticize or address bad ideas, how do you view the role of shame versus empathy or, or, or other techniques to address bad ideas in a way, in, in thinking about your, your friend from the Dilbert cartoon, in a way yeah. that is compelling or, or, or that is uh, uh, able to affect change? Yeah, well, you know, it, honestly, it's not a recipe that I have found yet. I, and I think it probably changes. I mean, I, I don't actually know what I'm doing in many of these conversations. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you can tell, but um, I don't consider myself a professional uh, interviewer. And my agenda can change in the middle of a conversation, depending on you know, what the topic is and what I feel like I'm getting out of it. I mean, to take the Scott Adams case that you, you referenced, there I felt like I erred on the side of being a kind of a, a, a gracious host. I mean, I got, I got, so I let my impatience leak out a little bit. I mean, the, the part of that was just me thinking it would be more interesting if I expressed it rather than dampened it. But I find there, there, there is something shocking about the worldview that he's advocating, and I, I was not expressing my my moral shock as much as I, I might have there in the interest of, of keeping the conversation on the rails. It may seem like a paradox. I don't know that it, it is one. I think interpersonally, I would agree with you, the role for shame is, is maybe non-existent. You're either interested in somebody. I mean, this is, this is a point I've made before where there's kind of an uncanny valley of moral opprobrium where if, if someone is bad enough you don't have to signal your disapproval at all. If I invited a... Charles Manson. Yeah, the, or the Unabomber, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to have a podcast with the Unabomber, right? I would have to spend not even 30 seconds admonishing him. You know, you know it's bad to send bombs in the mail and blow people's hands <laughs> off, right? You know, I don't approve of that at all right. in case my audience is confused. But if, you, if I had someone like Jared Taylor on the podcast, I would be just pilloried for giving him a platform. And if I did, if, I was, if my interest was enough to get me to go past that hurdle and, and invite him on, I would have to spend some significant time slamming him for his views and, right. not, and not playing the empathy card and right. not playing the, the, the anthropological interest card, but actually signaling, you know, virtue signaling to my audience that the guy I'm talking to now is, is reprehensible on some level. Right. You it can would be see how that wouldn't work for me, though, in, yeah, in a one-to-one exactly. -one you, You've got a different job. Yeah. You know, you're trying to reach these people. I can also say, though, I mean, at 18, 19, 20, 22 years old, had anybody shamed me, it would not have changed my mind. It would have made me angrier. It would have, you know, if somebody would have attacked me, I would have attacked back harder. Mm -hmm. um, so while I think that there are some people, you know, obviously, you know, nobody's going to sit here and say, oh, that poor kid Dylan Roof, right? I mean... You have to be accountable for your actions, regardless. But, but um, so, uh, just well, a question, Christian, yeah. move on if this is boring, but, but I'm, I'm talking sort of specifically through the lens of a Bill Maher or a John Oliver who are, their show is about yeah. shaming. Well, so, so, so the other side is, but it's rarely in it's person, right? There, so now, we're, now it's what we say about people when they're not here. But there's certainly a role for ridicule. I mean, so it's to have comedians making painfully funny jokes sure. about bigots 
I think our comedians right now seem to be our, our, our best news agencies as far as I'm concerned. But, but yeah. does that not entrench them? Does that not entrench the opposition to their views? Uh, they, know that, they know their audience. They know that their audience is sympathetic to what they're saying. So, I mean, it, it still is entertainment. Uh, I don't think that they're trying, you know, to, they're not trying, you know, for social change necessarily. I mean, it's, it's news and entertainment, so. Well, to to go back to this other point, though, do you think I should do an event like this with Jared Taylor? There's another name that that keeps getting thrown at me. So, Stefan Molyneux is is a name that I know very well because uh, a significant number of, of parents that reach out to me have lost their children to his ideology. I would, I would love to see you own him. If you're going to shame somebody, he'd be one I'd, I'd, I'd sit in the front row for. But here's the thing. But where do you do, so it's not what do you do with him. the why give this person a platform? Why? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, there is the possibility that some people in this auditorium you know, might listen to him and say, well, what he's saying is not so wrong. Uh, And that's the danger of that, right? The danger of of somebody being maybe predisposed to that kind of a message because they've gone through their own trauma or whatever. Um, So there's a danger to that. Um, I don't don't believe in giving people, I don't want to see Richard Spencer on CNN, you know, every night uh, talking about his ideologies because I've sat with Richard Spencer for two hours and I see through all that. I see through most most of the, you know, the performance that he has. I mean, he's a racist, don't get Mm -hmm. me wrong. Um, but there's also a performance element to it, and putting them on a stage and giving them a platform makes things come out of their mouth that maybe they don't really normally say. But Amolino, I mean, he's a dangerous person. He is, he is somebody that is effectively destroying families around mm. the world uh, because he is latching on and, and giving his, you know, his views to these really impressionable young people who now are convinced that every problem in their life is because of their parents or their family, and now they need to you know, divorce them and, and never, ever talk to them again. I think that there's a limit to who, who we decide to give space to mm. and who we don't. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah so, so Charles Murray, so there's a, I'm glad you raised Charles Murray. They're just jumping a line. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, there is a line. Screw there's that a, person. There's a, there's a norm. Yeah, there's a norm we're trying to enforce here, and it's called a line. But, I just got back from Japan. Yeah, yeah. Everything was very ordered there. Don't give me too much yeah. culture stuff. Okay, but I'll, I'll 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 comment on Charles Murray, and then I'll go to you, sir. Charles Murray, I think, is a straight-up academic who has been unfairly demonized, and I had him. I had him on the podcast because. I mean, I had always thought his book, The Bell Curve, was radioactive, and I, I never read, I didn't read it when it came out. And it would, when he was attacked at Middlebury, and I, was see, and I was becoming increasingly worried about the pathology on the left, the deplatforming, and the, the obviously illegitimate attacks on real academics and the closing down of discourse, I decided to have him on just to, just to see what that conversation became. And I don't think Charles Murray has a racist bone in his body. Now, I don't, I mean, I know him only on the basis of that conversation and having read his book, but the, the most controversial paragraphs in the bell curve are amazingly innocuous. That was a full-blown moral panic, that reaction to the bell curve. And when I saw what happened to me because I had Charles Murray on the podcast, when I saw the Vox article that came out and 
my private correspondence with Ezra Klein, trying to get him to correct the errors in that article. Ezra Klein is the editor-in-chief of Vox. It's just amazing to encounter the leftist irrationality and, and demonization that awaits you if you touch this topic. So, yeah, I think Charles Murray has been unfairly treated. But it's really a problem that you can have a, a website like Vox that breaks real stories. I mean, they're not as bad as Salon or some other journals. Just to give you a sense of how bad this is, because this, you haven't seen this publicly, the editor-in-chief of the journal Intelligence, who had just written, this is Richard Hare, who just wrote a book published by Cambridge University Press, The Neurobiology of Intelligence. This is the guy whose whole game is to talk about the, the brain basis of intelligence. He unsolicited, just seeing what Vox did to me and Murray after that podcast, he unsolicited wrote an opinion piece, a, a letter of, of correction, completely taking our side and, and going after uh, Richard Nisbet and the other author of that, of that Vox piece. And Ezra Klein wouldn't publish it as though they had run out of pixels on the website. <laughs> right? And he just doubled down with more opprobrium directed at, at me and Murray. So it's, it's, there is a kind of, there's a taboo to all, all of this. Yeah, it's, the, the phrase is greenwald in now, yes. So you, sir, you've been very patient. Um, Sam, I very much appreciated the conversations you had with Douglas Murray regarding the current immigration crisis in Europe. Um, presently, um, America and Canada are two of the very few countries in the world uh, that anyone in this room would want to live in that practice uh, automatic birthright citizenship. Mm. Uh, birthright citizenship was abolished in all of Europe, God, at least 20, 30 years ago. And you're hard-pressed to find any countries in the, uh, outside the Western Hemisphere other than Canada and America that practice this. Do you have a position on uh, birthright citizenship? And do you think it's possible in this current political environment to oppose birthright citizenship without seeming like a total racist? You know, I, I don't have a position on that. I really haven't thought about it. I have a, kind of a generic position on immigration, which is that I think you want defensible borders. You want to know who's coming into the country. And then you want a rational policy to bring all the people into the country who you want in the country. And I, I think we want immigration. There's no question we want immigration. So immigration isn't a bad word. But having no idea who's crossing your border seems like a bad thing in this day and age. But given the status quo, given that we have you know, whatever it is, 11, 12 million people here, quote, illegally, the vast majority of whom are working in jobs that many of us don't want and need done, uh, and they're just you know, peaceful, honest people trying to get by and living sort of outside the legal system, I do favor some kind of amnesty, some kind of just resetting of getting back to zero. But that, I think, should be coupled with actually knowing who's coming into the country. So I think those, those two positions can be harmonized. Yeah. So as a person in high school myself, uh, first of all, I want to thank both of you for yeah. uh, being Thanks out for coming. here. But I see many people at my school and sure, there are Republicans at my school, but I think the majority of the people who I would consider to be like very ideological in my school are extremely liberal. Hmm. So how how would how how should we, as a, a from a national perspective, try to address the fact that many people in high school and especially in college are sort of becoming extremely ideological, ideologically leaning 
to the left. And so, like, as you pointed out in your conversation, calling all Republicans Nazis and uh, making ridiculous claims about uh, you, Mr. Harris, and mm -hmm. other people like Majid Nawaz and other people that you mentioned, how would you actually address this increasing, uh, like, ideology, uh, ideological basis that the left tries to instill in, I think, young people especially? Well, it just comes down to having a fact-based discussion all the time. Being intellectually honest, being willing to take risks with your reputation by being honest on topics that are that you know are somewhat polarizing. I, I just think it's we all have to do this, and we have to do this in our private lives. We have to do it on social media. We have to we have to become interested in what's true, and and in accurately representing the, 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 what we have every reason to believe is true. And I think that's when people are obviously failing to do that. There should be some social stigma associated with that. I mean, I, the worst thing about Trump for me, and I'm, I'm not going to get into a 20-hour Trump rant here. <laughs> you, you know what I think about Trump. Yeah, you can. But, Go ahead. But, but the worst thing for me has been this, this erosion of a fact-based discussion and the fact that lying... The fact, that, the fact that lying has no penalty at this point. I mean, lying is, is, is now a method. And we have to get back to a world, if, if we ever were firmly established in such a world, we have to get, we have to, get to a world where there, there is real opprobrium and reputational cost to being caught in a lie. I think lying is, is the most corrosive thing that... Uh, we all do, on, or most people do on a regular basis, and is, is considered normal. And we just, we need to tune our, our ethics around that. But I think also, yeah. also recognize that you're in a bubble and that there are other bubbles that are not like yours, that are not liberal bubbles, that are, you know, ultra-conservative, ultra-nationalist bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Christian, this question's for you. Um, right. I was just wondering uh, if, uh, just in these, the sociology of these different groups that you've been a part of, mm -hmm. if, um, if the belief, the bad beliefs were just restricted to racist things, or if these people were susceptible to other types of bad beliefs, like in quirks of like conspiracies from other things besides racism. Yes. Uh, they are, because they live in such a, a, a separated universe, because they've left everything else behind, because they've adopted and swallowed this ideology, they've become now kind of the purveyors of conspiracy theory. And there, you know, there are things like, uh, there was one woman who ran a podcast, very white supremacist uh, podcast that was blaming the Jews for uh, Hurricane Matthew. As if, you know, all the Jewish people in Florida suddenly stood in a parking lot and blew at the same time and, you know, caused this hurricane. Um, but let me, let me just take that a step further. And I don't know if I mentioned this, so correct me if I did. Seven out of the ten uh, requests that I get from help uh, are people who are diagnosed uh, but untreated with mental illness. So Asperger's, autism, uh, schizophrenia, ADHD. Uh, and they're specifically targeting these groups who, you know, can potentially latch on to something uh, and only focus on that and become very passionate about that one thing because it makes them comfortable. And um, 
it's, it's dangerous because, you know, like I said earlier, truth is really under attack. And I really think that it is the most important thing that needs to be defended right now is truth. Because once we lose it, it's gone. I mean, what's our benchmark? What do we go back to? How do we know how to get back there? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for making your way to Dallas. Yeah. We all appreciate yeah. it. Um, I don't think the left is necessarily blameless, but there's a poll in the Miami Herald that allegedly shows that 42% of Republicans believe that any media report that attacks their favorite beliefs or, or politicians is fake news, whether true or not. This report also happens to perfectly encapsulate my entire family. <laughs> uh, how do we engage? Thanksgiving was rough, let me tell you. But how do we engage these people and lead them to accept truths in conflict with, uh, in conflict with their uh, fundamental identities and worldview? Well, again, it is a fact-based conversation. The thing about facts is that they can be inconvenient, you know, so that you can find facts, you can find truths that put the lie to an ideology that's not true. And, it, and you can never anticipate in advance how this is going to happen. I mean, you're just going to, you're just, it's like if, you're, if your beliefs are wrong, you're walking in the dark and you, you bump into something, right? And because you're not, you're not, you don't actually have a map of the various obstacles there. And if conversations are allowed to go long enough, you can put people in positions where but most people, I mean, there are people who fall outside this, but the most people, no matter how deranged their belief system, they do feel some burden to not be self-contradictory, right? If you can show them that the two closely held beliefs that they claim to cherish are in opposition or in conflict with one another, then something has to give. And it's rare that you get the person who just says, you know, who cares, right? I believe both. You know, my hope for, for conversations of, of all kinds is that if you take them long enough, if, if there's any semblance of a, an honest interlocutor on the other side, no matter how deranged their, their actual views, you can find points where they are, they're put in conflict with themselves. And that is the, the most effective challenge, I think, to a, a person's worldview, is that when, when they, you can show them that they're being inconsistent even by their own lights. You know, it's a, it's a reductio ad absurdum. It doesn't happen often enough in real time. I mean, this is the, I'm in a weird position because I'm often in conversations where, where I'm challenging people's beliefs. I see virtually no result from those conversations with the people I'm talking to. But I see, but I receive you know tens of thousands of emails from people who are whose beliefs have been changed by witnessing those conversations or reading relevant books. And so. This idea that, that no one ever gets reasoned out of their beliefs is, is untrue. It's the person on stage with you who you're debating tends not to get reasoned out of his or her beliefs. But that's, that's not the, really the point of that particular conversation. It's, it's for the rest of hu humanity that may stumble upon that conversation. So, yeah. Thank you. Uh, first off, thank you for uh, what you do. I'm a Mexican-Israeli Jew, so... Yes, that's a lot of... Um, yeah, so my, my question kind of revolves around uh, what I saw after what happened at Charlottesville. I remember watching this short little clip about some white nationalist uh, talking to some reporter, and she asked about her daughter, what happens if she would marry uh, a black guy? She said, oh, I would never talk to her again. And then they said, if you married a Jew, I would kill her. 
where does this hierarchy of hate come from? <laughs> you, you know, it, it, I think it comes down to who they believe have more control. So I would say they probably hate, you know, Jews the most because they think that those 15 Jews are running the whole world, right. like you said. Um, you know, it, it's really just, it's laziness on their, it's intellectual laziness on their part. They just really hate everybody. I mean, it's not, they hate themselves, which is why they hate other people, you know, they're projecting, but um, it's hard to say. I mean, they really, I would say they're, they're pretty equal opportunity haters, uh, <laughs> That's what, that's what I assumed. But no, the, the, you know, Judaism is, is definitely their number one target for whatever reason. Um, and, I, and I can't explain it, and I was one of those people, and I don't know why. Uh, I just think it's because they are a smaller community. They may have like this air of mystery about them. Mm. Uh, you know, those 15 people do a lot of work, and somehow things get done. No, I don't know. But it's... Uh, it's, it's a fear of who they believe is pulling the strings, which is certainly not the case. Okay, something quick to Sam? Yep. Um, I know your mother was, is Jewish, secular, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you think any of her traditions or any of those beliefs actually carry through to the way you think? Because I was growing up, I was raised uh, to, you know, criticize and things like that based on my Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if any of those values you think that you carried over even till today? Well, culturally, I, I'm very at home in secular Judaism because, I, I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. th- there's, there are very few Jews. It's like, what is it, 1.5% or 2% of, of the country. But if, if I think of all the people I grew up with, it's, it's, it has to be at least half of the people I knew were Jewish, I think. I mean, I, I would just be guessing. But it's just it's completely out of register with what is true in, in the country. But I mean, there was zero religion, so it's just it's just all the cultural so you're references. Jewish. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly right. So <laughs> that's the only. This is what's so misleading about talking about Judaism in religious debate, because you know I've been on stage with conservative rabbis who didn't believe anything. Right? I mean, they're they're not reform rabbis; they're conservative, and they when push comes to shove, they basically just believe that the universe has a positive energy in it, and you know. <laughs> That's it, right? So Judaism is, in general is far more secular, but apart from just getting most of the jokes in Woody Allen movies, you know, I'm, I'm not very Jewish, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's a cultural background that I certainly share. So. Thanks for coming. Both of you guys are yeah. in the business of changing minds and uh, changing lives, and I was just wondering if each of you had an example from your, you know, people you've changed your mind that you'd like to share? People who've changed our minds? No, no, no. People who've contacted you that you've changed their minds. Oh, I've got a story. Sure, yeah. Um, So there was a 31-year-old guy uh, named Daryl from Buffalo, New York, that somebody had given him a copy of my book, uh, and he emailed me because he was not happy with the ending. You know, I left the movement, and he was still in it. He was not happy about Mm -hmm. that. So he wanted to make sure I knew about it. Um, and, uh, I talked to him for several weeks and, uh, you know, just through email and over the phone. And, and one day he, he had been discharged from the military. He had been wounded during training, uh, was recruited in the military by, uh, by a white nationalist. 
And uh, he was really angry that he couldn't be deployed to Afghanistan to kill Muslims. Uh, and one of the things that he said to me on the phone one day was that, uh, you know, he, he was walking in the park with his daughter and his dog, and he saw, you know, a Muslim man praying on the ground, and he wanted to just kick him in the face. And I said, uh, I don't know what you're doing tomorrow, but you're taking a day off of work, and I'm flying to Buffalo because we need to sit down and talk. And uh, after talking to him, you know, I, it was pretty obvious that he had, like, this seething hatred. So I asked him, I said, have you ever met, you know, a, a Muslim person? And he said, no, why would I want to do that? You know, they're evil, they're the devil, they want to kill me, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I said, okay. So I excused myself and I went to the bathroom and I got my phone out and very quietly Googled the local mosque. And uh, I got on the phone with the imam and I said, imam, uh, I have a Christian man here who would really love to learn more about your religion. Do you mind if we step on? <laughs> um, and, you know, if he wasn't religious, I wouldn't have done this, but, you know, he was already a, a pretty devout uh, Christian. Uh, so after some hemming and hawing, and, and if, you know, first I told him we were going to get food, and then I said we have to make a pit stop. Anyway, we knock on the door, and the imam answered, and he said, I've only got 15 minutes, you know, to talk to you because we had kind of been arguing in the car about going in. And uh, we went in and spent two and a half hours there uh, talking uh, across the table and, uh, you know, they realized they had a lot of similarities between their religions, and uh, they really, really bonded over Chuck Norris for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Apparently, Chuck can do anything. Um, and, you know, there was hugging and crying, and, you know, it was the first time he had ever really met a Muslim person before. And, and, uh, and uh, there's not a Friday that you can drive uh, down a street and not see those two together, Daryl and the imam, eating falafel at their favorite Mediterranean place now. Um, please, please tell me the punchline isn't that they both hate the Jews. <laughs> Which, no, I did not amplify yeah. them by putting... <laughs> no, there was actually very little talk about religion. It was really just about you know, understanding how people grew up and... Right. And, you know, they, it was about creating that humanization, really. I'm really not that cynical. I just... Uh, over here. Uh, Sam, I was listening to your conversation with Charles Murray on the way up here. Uh, I'm an educator at a predominantly black, low socioeconomic school. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. Um, uh, Christian, I think a lot of my students would probably resonate with the way that you felt when you were, when you were young. Uh, they feel disenfranchised. They feel angry. Uh, and you also mentioned how we're, we're doing a disservice to our youth. You mentioned that a bit. Um, so my question to, to both of you is, uh, as parents, as, as U.S. citizens, as, uh, as public thinkers, what, what would you like to see done with education in the U.S.? And um, what role do you think that plays in fighting that erosion of fact-based conversation and this era of mass misinformation? Good question. Uh -huh. Well, just briefly, I think we should recognize that education is as high a priority as can be named. I mean, apart from just not dying, you know, and, and uh, not fighting a nuclear war, we should want to educate our children to the best of our ability. So I think the, the job of teacher should be a much higher prestige job than it is. And I think we should recruit just... 
we should, it should just, the, the economics of this should be flipped. It should be a very competitive space and very well compensated and it's just, we just need to rethink how we, we approach education. I think we need to teach the truth. I think we need to talk about the fact that for 250 years, this has been primarily a white supremacist country. Uh, and the fact that, that this is not, to say that this is a nation of immigrants is a very privileged statement. We are a nation of immigrants, natives, and ex-slaves. And we need to recognize that because when we call it a nation of immigrants, we are completely omitting a large, significant part of American society. What, what would your advice be to, to 17, 18-year-old black kids that, that, that feel disenfranchised? What would, you, what would be your message to them? Uh, I th my message to them is, is that I would help them show them that opportunity exists because in the neighborhood, and I come from Chicago, and it's, Chicago is still one of the most segregated cities in the country. Uh, there isn't public transportation that goes to many of these urban neighborhoods. There, aren't, there is an opportunity there. And essentially, they're prisons without walls, and people like me who gentrify the neighborhoods are the, the wardens. And uh, I, I, I hate that we do that, and I, and I think that we need to change the educational system, we need, to change law, uh, we need to change the justice system, and we need to change all of our institutions that have been based on uh, a way of doing things for 250 years that has completely ignored and in, many in most cases almost decimated part of our population. So we need to, we need to fix that. Thank you. Thank you both, and um, thank you, Sam, for sharing your conversation with Russell Brand. I think it was uh, oh, a lot yeah, of fun. Well. <laughs> wow. That was not as painful as it sounded. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like you had fun, which was yeah. really cool to be a part of. Yeah. But one point that stood out where you seemed to both reach an impasse despite your good intentions, I wanted to focus on. He comes from a posture, I think, of humility, which is sorely uh, missing in our public discourse. But it's concerning that he couldn't answer definitively about the life that his daughter would have in Afghanistan right. and I, the reality of that. And I, how do you have this conversation um, when someone you're talking to won't even acknowledge the reality for their own daughter, much less for any other woman on the planet? That's one question. And then separately, so much of your work sounds so incredibly meaningful and impactful. How can we help or how, we, how can we support you? Yeah, well, well briefly, I think there are, there are points that a privileged white guy like me just can't make effectively to certain audiences. And now I haven't stopped trying, so I, 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 still, I still make those points, but it takes someone like, you know, Sarah Hader, you know, an ex-Muslim you know, who uh, can just speak from direct experience. I mean, so, so if you would just imagine Sarah Hader at that table talking to Russell about the rights of women in, in the Muslim world, if he would try to make those same points to her, it, I think it would be very quickly revealed to be a intellectually dishonest and even disreputable thing to do. I mean, just he, he, I, don't, I can't imagine him even trying it. I mean, it, it doesn't stop people like Sarah. I mean, so, so Sarah Hader gets deplatformed at colleges, right? She's you know as unobjectionable a person as any that has ever walked the earth. But the fact that she's saying anything critical of Islam is taboo. And, to, and, you know, you must know what's happened to Ayan Hirsi Ali in that vein. Is that the same reason why the government stopped hiring me for talks after this election? They don't like, the, they don't like me to be critical of some of perhaps their own ideologies? 
I, I, I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> I used to um, do a lot of uh, speaking around the world for the State Department uh -huh. and, and, and our government. Yeah, and uh, yeah. come November 20, or sorry, January you know, 20 uh, election day, I got no more right. of those talks because of what I was talking about. Someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali, the doors on the political right open wide because she's saying things that are, are critical about Islam. Uh, and Christian fundamentalists come out of the woodwork to support her. But she's a secular, atheist, tr truly liberal person. I mean, she's not, she's not right-wing. I mean, maybe she's slightly libertarian economically. But there is a pathology on the left that anyone on the left, anyone who really cares about liberal values, has to figure out how to exercise. And Russell really does connect a lot of those dots. I mean, he's a really sweet guy. I mean, he's just, uh, he's an incredibly nice person, but he's, he's massively confused about uh, a lot of these points. You know, so, but, and she asked you how your work can be supported. That's a, uh, one of the best that. things that anybody could do, and you're all equipped to do this, is go find somebody that you feel is undeserving of your compassion and empathy and give it to them, because I guarantee you, I guarantee you they're the ones who need it the most. Okay. You should also read his And buy book. my book. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, here. Hi, Sam. Uh, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. A little you. nervous, trying to be mindful of it, you know. Um, a couple people brought up Jared Taylor and uh, Stefan Molyneux earlier, and uh, Jared Taylor's a really good example of one of these guys who, especially if you're a young, right-leaning person, a lot of what he says, there's, you know, kernels of reason in there. Right. And it can be real seductive uh, to people like that. Do you think that in not giving guys like him a platform, you kind of sometimes run the risk of letting that stuff go unchecked? Do you feel any responsibility as a, a public intellectual to, to publicly check guys like him? Like you asked the room earlier, you know, how many people would like to see you have a conversation with him? Um, so how do you draw the yeah. line between not giving someone a platform or, or giving them one so that you can kind of publicly yeah, I, show them? I mean, I, I'm cautious about this because, again, it's hard to debate someone so effectively that even their fans recognize that you destroyed their right. worldview, right? I mean, it's, it's not, it's because it's hard to think these things through. And there, there, as you say, there are kernels of truth that run through many of these, these viewpoints. And it's true that even right-wing people, even, even obnoxiously right-wing people, even racists, in addition to everything else that happens to them, they also get treated unfairly, right? I mean, they're unfair criticisms of a person who holds terrible ideas. I mean, if I, if I knew that having someone like Jared on my podcast would result in a very clear delineation of everything that's wrong with his worldview and a massive campaign of unsubscription for, from it, well, then, then it would seem like a, a straight-up public good and I would, I would do it. But conversations are, are harder than that. And I'm worried about wasting my time. I'm worried about, because I mean, I've, I've done a few of these where I feel like, okay, in the end, that probably wasn't good for anybody. I mean, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a good listening experience for podcast listeners. And, Peterson. Yeah, well, Peter, and I'm going to, so Peterson's an interesting case because what I, I think he's, I don't think he's a performance artist. I think he's honestly trying to help people. I think he's wrong about certain things, but right about many other things. And he is, He's kind of unmasked a, a, a need for a meaning-based conversation in the secular community. And I, I think it, it will be interesting to try to straighten that out in real time in front of 
many of his fans, right? So that's a conversation I'm willing to, to that's an experiment and conversation I'm willing to have. And so we're going to do some events together, but I don't know what's going to happen there. I mean, that could go completely haywire and, and seem like a waste of time in the end because our, our first podcast, as you know, was, was brutal. I liked it a lot, actually. Yeah. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, some people find, again, some people find these very painful podcasts valuable. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're masochists in the world, uh, you know. So if you want to practice self-harm, you can go back and listen to the, the best podcast ever, which is in my catalog. Uh, and it's, it's horrific. Um, Sam, my yeah. name is Jordan. I'm from Dallas. I'm probably your biggest black fan you'll ever meet. Um, nice. sir, Thank you. I'm not sure what your name is. I didn't catch your name at Christian. the beginning, but Christian. I do have a Christian. I do have a two-part question. Yeah. Uh, sir, you, Christian, you've been, uh, in, in my opinion, unnecessarily hard on the right while ignoring the ills of the left. Basically, the things that Sargon of Akkad talks about, uh, intersectionality politics, do you not see why people may have an inherent uh, distrust of the far left and may lean towards the right or may be centrist, not defending the alt-right. I don't think anyone in this audience would defend the alt-right. Just being <laughs> Thank here. you for that. So I don't think anyone would, <laughs> but I do think that people lean towards the right because of a natural distrust of the far left. So I think that's one part. So I would like to hear an answer of why you're harder on the right than the left. That's one thing. And then, or I can ask Sam's yeah, no, question. No, 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 that's, that's good. Let me tell you a secret. I've, I've seen the intricate workings of both sides, which I think most people don't have uh, both the curse and the luxury of, of having. Um, I don't think I was unfairly, I mean, I, de I definitely talked about the left having its problems, uh, which I acknowledge they do. Uh, I think just the term right and left is, is divisive in itself because really we're all kind of in the middle floating around from side to side, right? Um, how do I answer your question without... The problem with the right is that, and I'm talking about the far, I am right, talking right. about the alt-right and white nationalists now. The problem that I see is that they're taking their message and they've understood how to make it more palatable to attract people through fear rhetoric. And I see that happening with very innocent, well-meaning conservative people who are now, because of the idea that there are two parallel truths happening, uh, are, are choosing one track over the other because it's, it, it's closer. It's not the same, but it's closer to what they believe than the other. Uh, and we're in this society where we're being chose to, to choose a side. Uh, I have a lot of conservative friends. I have a lot of black friends. I have a lot of Jew I have friends everywhere. Uh, so I do have the luxury of being able to listen to, to both sides. Um, and what I'm seeing happening on the right is, is that these people on the far right are taking advantage of well-meaning people on the right. And I, I'm not okay with that. But don't you think the same could be said about the left? Oh, absolutely. So why you didn't say that? My experience is being an ex-neo-Nazi. Okay. Fair, so, enough. Fair enough. That's my expertise. That's what I'm talking about. But to answer your question, fair enough. Fair enough. but to answer your question, I do call it out on the left when I okay. see it uh, because I, I, you know, it enables the right, just like yeah. the right enables the, the far left. Right. And we need to stop that because this isn't a, this isn't a game that's going to end up with a winner if we keep playing it. Uh, we're both going to lose. Thanks, uh, Christian and Sam, for coming out. Yeah. Uh, my name is Sushrat. I, uh, I'm from Dallas here and get a lot of interaction with uh, people in the South. And my question is, how do you respond to um, 
many of the voters, Trump voters, that aren't most probably aren't racist or anything like that, but they have this uh, white identity politics uh, underlying some of their motivation where, you know, they'll say, see, like, Black Panther comes out and, you know, black people celebrate all over, and that's okay, but anytime any white thing happens, you know, they're not allowed to celebrate, or there's women's marches, and that's okay, but men's marches can't happen, and that would be, you know, right. something. That's because every important. day in our history has been a celebration yeah. towards white males, yeah. and... It's okay to let other people celebrate when, when something happens that they're proud of. It's okay. Well, it's, it, they say that it's the year 2018. Everyone's got, you know, equal rights now, and, you know, we're all, you know, humans, and so, like, we're, you know, we should be just yeah. celebrating. Well, I, I, think, I think the ground truth has to be that identity politics is a dead end. I mean, it's understandable. It's understandable why you would want to have black identity politics right. or gay identity politics or if, if there's just pick your most beleaguered minority they certainly are the most justified in playing the identity politics game but there are diminishing returns there and ultimately we have to outgrow this fascination with the color of our skin or the uh, your sexual orientation or any any other difference that really shouldn't matter Right, and so like we, we have to get to a place where we recognize that these things don't matter. And so what is the path to them not mattering? It can't be to care more and more about these differences. Right, it can't be, that can't be the algorithm. You know, this is the most important thing in my life, the color of my skin. That can't be the end game. Yeah, I worry more and more that, that the identity politics we see on the left in response to Trump, which has, it's understandable that it's, that it's, drawing a lot of energy from Trump and certainly from things like Charlottesville, that that will just amplify the mirror image on the right. Can you say the same thing about like racial pride or cultural pride, just being proud of, you know, like... Well, I mean, well, pride is also just a weird thing. I mean, pride, even, even self-pride is weird, but pride about your race is, is, you know, like how much credit do you want to take for being the race you are? <laughs> it's... Uh, it's an odd, I mean, it's, it's a kind of an odd schema, but you know, I mean, I, culture, celebrating cul- differences of culture, that's right. great. I mean, like, you know, celebrating Indian culture or, or uh, Jewish culture or I mean, whatever the culture, I mean, we're talking about food and music and architecture. I mean, that's all amplifying the, the beauty of the world, but that doesn't, if that's conveying this message of important differences between people, you know, and different ideologies and different moral norms, Right, it's like how people should be treated, you know, and when to use violence and all of that. That's that's when it gets very dicey. So, right. I think yeah. pride stops when it demeans other people. So, I mean, we should all be proud of positive right. accomplishments. Right. But. So we're we're down to our last ten minutes, unfortunately. So that that should well, we're going to try to do four more questions. So sorry, two each side. I'm very sorry. <laughs> To uh, those, uh, actually, I'm going br- yes. to break. Uh, I'm going to break all my rules. I see women at the, in the third positions. Can we get? Can we get uh, uh, at least two women on each side as well? Um, you, you can call that virtue signaling, but I actually just want to hear from women. So, okay, it is just a kind of a pathology of my life that there's so few women in in situations like this. That we just want to be representative yeah. of. Right, so everybody's here. Yeah, my. I'll be short, as yeah. Sam. Um, completely off topic. 
Uh, what's your favorite moment or memory of Christopher Hitchens from the time you've been able to spend with him? Uh, well, first, it, it, in case it isn't totally obvious, he is uh, missed more than ever at, at moments like this. I mean, just the idea that, that there's so many people who think that he would have voted for Trump because of how much he hated the Clintons, uh, that it would be so delicious to see that delusion deflated <laughs> in real time. But, well, he, he was a, I mean, we, so he came out for a debate that we did with two rabbis, actually the, the conservative rabbis I, I mentioned before, and he flew out to, to California way past a point where I thought he would want to travel. I mean, he was, he was obviously sick. I mean, you can see that debate on YouTube. Uh, he's, he had gone through chemo, and we had dinner before the debate, and I realized, I, I think I wrote about this after he died, I realized with a shock that this was like this was the first time we'd ever had dinner together alone, and this was almost certainly our last dinner together. And that was that was obvious, and, and it was Valentine's Day actually. Yeah, it was. We I remember this because we were at a at a bar at the hotel where he was staying, and they had some very formal like Valentine's Day shtick they were doing. And we both looked at each other and said, this is the wrong bar to be doing this. <laughs> uh, so uh, we've, we found a better one. But I mean, the, the thing that, that I got from him in moments like that was how much he loved. I mean, he, he was very different from me in many respects. And, and he loved situations like this more than anything. I mean, he loved getting on a plane and making it to the next event. You know, he, he just—it was not work for him, right? And I'm—I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, now that I'm here, I, I love this. But if you know, if you meet me in the airport or you know, uh, in all the transitional moments, that's you know, I don't live for for that kind of moving around. And I, I remember, actually, we, we were at, we did this debate together in Mexico, and this is another instance where his his love of of this kind of thing was palpable. We did our event. It was later that night in the bar, it was midnight, and he was eating a club sandwich and drinking scotch. Mm-hmm. And he had to, he had a car picking him up in two hours to take him three or four hours to Mexico City to get on a plane, you know, the, the red eye, to go to D.C., and he had another debate to do that night in D.C., right? So like, there was no transit, I mean, there was no sleep involved, right? And he's having his scotch and a club sandwich at midnight. <laughs> and I just looked at him and realized that the, this, I was looking at a different species of person. So, yeah, he was, um, he was an incredibly generous, gracious, uh, wonderful person, and I knew him far too briefly. Well, thank you, sir. Okay, yeah. okay so the topic of my question just got a lot more interesting, actually. Um, I wanted to talk about masculinity here. Um, I've noticed that masculinity has been kind of coupled with the alt-right sort of. I, I can't ignore this. I've kind of noticed this trend. And also, um, on the other side, um, I spent a, a weekend at a lake house with, you could probably call them hardcore feminists, really strong in their convictions. And they were talking about something called toxic masculinity. Right. I haven't really heard of this term before, so um, just to play devil's advocate, I took the pro-male stance, and I kind of got, like, ousted as a leper afterwards. Um, I want to know, have you all noticed this trend? And if so, like, why? 
Well, yeah, I've noticed it. I mean, there is, there is a, a demonization of men that's happening online. Yeah. Uh, and it is part of the, the pathology on the left that's giving the right so much energy now. But if you don't think there's any such thing as toxic masculinity, you haven't been paying attention. I mean, there, there is, you know, I mean, re read his book, read the first half of his book. The experience of, you know, there's nothing better to do in life than to get 20 guys together and go kick the shit out of 10 other guys, yeah. right? That's, that's toxic masculinity. You know, that's, I mean, there's not a lot of women doing that. Right? Well, and, and, and that's true, that's true. I, I'm, but it, 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 would you say there's like a, a positive sort of masculinity as well? Of course, that's of course. Because it seems like, like, like Trump is kind of the, the encapsulation of what's wrong with masculinity. That's... I mean, that's what I've, I've noticed. I can, I, I'm not going to yeah. ignore that one. But yeah. do you see an actual positive oh, of course, masculinity of course. as well? Cause yeah. It, I mean, so it'll be like, so like my friend Jocko Willink, right? I mean, yeah. he's like the most... Yes, yeah. He's like the most masculine guy you could, can find within a, you know, a thousand mile radius. He came over to my house once to do, to do the podcast. And when he walked through the door, my, my two daughters looked at him. And it was just like a polar bear walked through the front door. Uh, <laughs> You know, he's an incredibly positive version of a kind of a hyper male orientation. I mean, he's just, you know, he's as masculine as it gets. He's kind of a caricature of himself in some sense. <laughs> but he's an absolute sweetheart and, and a you know, very ethical and um, interesting and thoughtful person. So it's like he's, he's got none of the, the problems as far as I can tell. And... Yet he's kind of he's a hyper masculine yeah. signal, you know. So his podcast is the theater of benign masculinity. If you want to want to listen, the only thing I would add to that, yep. just real quick, is that extremist groups tend to latch on whatever flavor of the moment is kind of in the zeitgeist, right? Yeah. If, if women are, are being elevated because they deserve to be, suddenly that becomes an attack on men. Right. Yeah. When, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter is getting attention, uh, then they spin it to, you know, Black Lives Matter are terrorists. And they'll always take the flavor of the moment, whatever everybody's talking about, and spin it around. But I can tell you from experience that toxic masculinity exists in the white supremacist movement, or maybe in every extremist movement, like nowhere else. It is the most misogynistic, um, uh, awful environment for women but they draw them in initially as being like these goddesses who are you know procreating and, and building future white warriors and they put them on a pedestal and the moment they step on that pedestal and they've got them they knock them down and it's give me a beer and you're getting pregnant because that's what you do yeah. uh so you know it's but to that yeah they are using that now because you know and i even made a tweet and sorry, I'm taking up time, but we'll no. still get to your questions. But I, I made a tweet fairly recently that said, you know, hey, we, maybe we should stop thinking about demonizing all white males because when we do that, something like what you said, it's pushing people towards this movement yeah. because towards the far right. Uh, so there are, there are good guys out there. There are a lot of bad guys out there too. <laughs> we shouldn't ever generalize anybody. But... We also should, we should admit our fragility, you know, yeah. you know, is it really masculine to be all offended by the fact that a, you know, a woman is, is getting attention or is able to march on Washington DC? Like, get over it, dude. Um, 
Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Two very random questions. Christian, do you think there's any uh, uh, anything valuable about white guilt as an idea? And then, Sam, are you going to speak with Thaddeus Russell in your podcast? I don't have any plans to. I mean, I, I, he, like, I've never heard him say anything about me that made any sense. And he, he seems to think it makes lots of sense. So like, I, I don't predict a, a good podcast. I think it would be fascinating. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll put that in, in the plus column. Uh, <laughs> I vote yes. Uh, I think that white guilt is basically a, a, a white person's creation, right? This whole idea. We have a lot to, be, to feel guilty about, right? But white people have created this idea of, oh, people are making us feel white guilt. No. We need to empower people through our privilege and acknowledge the fact that we have privilege because there are people who are Americans, who are fellow citizens that have no access to opportunity, okay? So, oh, I'm so angry right now. I don't yeah. know, I wanna say, <laughs> no, we, uh, we should feel guilty for some of the things that we've done. But again, we cannot generalize and say that everything that white people have done to contribute to history is bad. It's not true, I mean, we, just like other cultures have contributed. But the thing with white guilt is, we think that we're the only ones that have contributed to, to society and to history, and that is not true. We, have that, we feel that guilt because we deny other people the right to feel proud of what they've accomplished in life. That's what I would say to that. Thank you. So firstly, um, Christian, I wanted to tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed your perspective, especially just how empathetic and compassionate you, that stance that you come from, I very much so identify with that, and so Thank I appreciate you. that thoroughly. Um, but my question is for Sam, because it's something I've wanted to pick your brain about for a really long time, and it seemed very appropriate tonight, <laughs> based on the conversation. Sure. I wrote it down so that I wouldn't go on a tangent. <laughs> um, so... With regard to Islam and Muslim extremism, I've heard you say on your podcast that when you've experienced backlash for your outspoken approach, that in actuality you have received testimonials from people who have converted from Islam because of the educated viewpoint that you have made available. My question is, do you acknowledge the possibility that your platform plays a role in having success with converting people with that specific approach? because people can access it at their own will and on their own time, mm. and that it would maybe be less successful in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Um, I ask because I have a strong passion for educating people about what they can do as an, like on an individual level uh, to create change in the world, and I feel as though, I think you would agree, Christian, I think, um, that compassion and conversation are also important to acknowledge as viable means of invoking change on a personal level. So I just wanted to ask if you agree, or if you don't, could you expand on or give advice to people in general who don't have mm. a platform to access a massive amount of people? Because I think that it is so important for people to feel like they can make a change and that people get easily overwhelmed by like trying to think that they can make world change, well, where do I start? Right. What right. is your advice for people on a personal level? Yeah, well, I think the, the ethics and the, and the politics and just the, the practicalities mm -hmm. change 
when you're just talking one-on-one in, right. in a social situation. So like someone hasn't necessarily invited you to come in and change their worldview mm-hmm. and you hear them say something that you disagree with or, and then the conversation starts. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel like what I should say from, you know, a stage like this or in an article or on a podcast is in some cases different than what I should say at a, you know, over dinner with someone who just holds right. a different view. And because, as you say, it might not be useful in some of those one-on-one encounters, and it just, be- it just becomes kind of a, a lack of, of civility or you know, it's just it, a different message is communicated because of the, f- the framing of the situation and because of the fact that on a podcast, as you say, or, or um, on a YouTube video, people can, they, they discover it, you know, and they can think about it in private and they don't have the imperative to change their mind in real time under pressure when you're telling them that they're full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why, you know, that's why some of these conversations go haywire, but they can still be useful for other people to listen right. to. And uh, so, yeah, I think there's a different approach warranted there or, or, or can often be, they can often be a different approach. But yes, I've heard from many, many people who have been in surprisingly isolated and devout circumstances. I mean, I, you know, I was actually with, on a speaking tour of Australia with Majid, and someone came up to me who had just had been living in, I think it was Peshawar, Pakistan, and uh, just you know, surrounded by you know, jihadists, by his description, uh, and was virtually one himself, and got completely deprogrammed from watching YouTube videos. Right. Uh, and had come to our talk and, and just wanted to, to shake my hand. And I've, I've had many, that's like the most extreme version, but many encounters like that where it's somebody who, when I'm putting stuff out there, I'm not even thinking of reaching that demographic. Right. You know, I'm just, and I'm I think not, that's wonderful that you have been able to access people um, all over the world. You know, and um, I did want to ask Christian if you wouldn't mind giving any thoughts or expansion on kind of what I was saying. You know, I, when I started telling my story, um, I was really scared to do that because I was afraid of being judged the same way that I judged other people. But I was really surprised that by me telling my story and other people hearing it allowed people to come forward with their own stories. Um, so, you know, as that part of healing or, dis- or conversation, um, I hope that I have empowered more people to be comfortable with their own past and and finally admit their mistakes and be proactive to fix it. But I know the feeling of of feeling overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Trust me, I know that. Um, When I get 100 emails a week from terrified parents, you know, not all of them who are afraid that their son or daughter is going to be the next, you know, lone wolf shooter, but some of those, uh, you know, I feel a lot of pressure because I know that this happens because of ideas that I put into the world. Um, I discovered four mo- uh, just a couple of months ago, four months before Dylan Roof committed his attack, uh, his, you know, the tragic uh, murder of, of nine innocent people in Charleston, four months before that, he had posted on uh, a white supremacist website asking about lyrics from a specific band that he had heard in a documentary. Uh, and somebody showed me this post, and, and they didn't know it, and I didn't know it when I started to read it, but when I finished reading it, I recognized that those were my lyrics that I wrote 30 years ago mm. that maybe partially inspired him to do that. Uh, so I planted a lot of seeds of hate, of which I'm still pulling out now, and I know feeling overwhelmed, but you have to understand that you are connected to so many people 
your friends, your family, coworkers, you have the ability to use whatever tools you have. Absolutely. And your tools may not be mm-hmm. the same tools that I have. Mm-hmm. But you have the ability to affect, to affect the people closest to you who then can in turn go out and affect other people. So I don't ever feel you overwhelmed. guys say that, honestly, because yeah. I try to yeah. do that in my personal life, but I feel like it's a very important topic yeah. to discuss. And we have to walk the walk. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we can't be... Uh, we, we can't profess believing in social justice unless we're willing to do something about it ourselves. So mm-hmm. stop Thank talking you. and let's act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and more and more, I, I would just add that I, I think it's important what we do on social media. I think, I think being civil and not joining you know, panics of one flavor or another is just... It's, it's, only going to become more important. So, yeah. All right. So my name is Kristen Paget. I ran for the Texas legislature as a Democrat and huh? openly <laughs> atheist. Nice. Um, well done. This was in 2016. Um, and you talked earlier. So first off, I had to be very artful when I spoke about it, right? About being openly atheist on the podcast, on NPR, and all that great right. stuff. You spoke about globalism a lot and... Well, I spoke about freedom of religion and freedom from religion, right? Right. Um, And so uh, one of the things you spoke about earlier was the consorted effort by the neo-Nazis to normalize the ideology, um, coming up with new names, nationalism, alt-right. So my question, which I think I kind of already know the answer to, but it's for the sake of the entire question, um, is I'd like to know if you believe in white privilege and or systemic racism. And then if you do believe, um, do you believe that labeling the advantages given to myself and other white people as a result of hundreds of years of slavery and racism, white privilege, divisive or polarizing? And if we should rebrand that and how in order to get that message across um, to not make it so divisive or make it so polarizing and to get the message that this is something that does exist and needs to, to um, be mitigated. I absolutely believe in white privilege, that it exists uh, in many forms. And when we talk about white privilege, we're not just talking about the idea that, um, you know, I have, if I were standing next to an African-American, that I would get the job before that person because there's a, a bias, in unco- whether it's conscious or unconscious. Absolutely. But I'm talking about having access through history and even into modern society to things that some people who are living two blocks away from us may not have. That is inherent privilege. Uh, The fact that I'm up here able to talk about my story without being terribly judged for it is is privilege. If there were, uh, you know, if Majid were up here, maybe in front of another audience, he may not get that same kind of, you know, uh, that same kind of uh, ability to to do that. Um, I'll answer that part of the question. You want to take the second half of that? Uh well, I certainly believe in privilege. I believe in, in good luck and bad luck, and there, and there are many variables. And I think it has moral significance. I think we should care about people who are unlucky for whatever reason. And I think white privilege is certainly less of a thing than the far left is making it out to be, but that doesn't mean that it's not a thing still, and it, it shouldn't be a thing. So what about systemic racism? I think that, again, that is something that is, is being exaggerated on the far left, but being denied categorically on the far right. And we just have to talk about racism insofar as it's, it's still a problem. You know, I think it, it is a problem. There are obviously racists, right? And there's obviously racial bias. 
but there's also just class difference, right, which, which is orthogonal to race. I mean, there are white people who are poor and uneducated, right, and who don't, and, and, and the, uh, the prospects of upward mobility for being white, poor, and uneducated uh, are pretty grim. But having white skin doesn't get you a lot if you don't have other advantages. Again, identity politics is a dead end, right? We, 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 can't, we can't empower, we can't usher in the new age of identity politics. That's fair. Do you believe that the history of racism in this country has um, provided certain advantages to the people that have, uh, I guess, that got lucky, quote unquote, right? Like, for example, you know, redlining. Dallas is actually one of the most well, segregated one of the most segregated country, uh, cities in this country, um, highly segregated. Um, so people that were born in certain areas of this town are much more, quote-unquote, privileged. Um, so do you yeah. think that that's part of that, um, the middle, the, the meat of the issue, right, is that there is historical significance to some of the advantages that certain people in this country have had um, that is not, you know, this leftist idea, right, um, it's that there is a, there is somewhere in the middle that there, this is an issue. Well, it is an issue, and but I'm not quite sure how we get back to zero there. Right. I mean, so like, what what is the remedy? You know, if you if you ask someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates, it's to to view absolutely every social and political question through the the lens of race, and to pay reparations for slavery, and to make race. To acknowledge that race is the most important thing and will always be the most important thing and to, to anchor every political conversation to it, I think that's a disaster. I agree right? with that. So, so there's, some, there's, there's something between Jared Taylor and ta Coates that's got to be true, <laughs> right? And it's, it's pretty clear to me that, that neither of them have the, the recipe for, for progress for us. And I don't, I mean, it's a kind of a flippant comparison. ta Coates is obviously a a much more serious person than, than Jared Taylor, but he's as concerned about race as any member of the KKK, right? I mean, race is the nuclear bomb that went off in his brain, and it doesn't need to be that way. We're living in a time where we, had our, we already had our first black president. We haven't had our first atheist president, right? I'm trying. Uh, <laughs> ironically, ironically, we probably have our first atheist president right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyway, but thank you for your question. Thank uh, you. Yeah. So I, I'm going to, it's just the last two. I'm sorry for everyone in line, but we, uh, we have to leave the theater. So, yeah. Thanks. Um, there seems to be some tension between um, having a fact-based conversation and um, calling out dog whistles. And in, 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 invariably, whenever people attack Sam or Ion or Majid, they do so using this rhetoric of dog whistles, no. that what you're saying isn't actually what you really mean. What you really mean right. is this much more sinister thing. And, and that just sounds very similar to the rhetoric that we heard from Christian earlier. And I just wanted to explore the tension there a bit. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm not a fan of pretending to read people's minds. And... I, I believe that most people will tell you what they actually think if you continue the conversation long enough or you'll find out some other way. And, I mean, that, it's not to say that that always works. Some people 
lie and they have, and, and I, you know, Christian can speak to this, that it can be campaigns of sure. disinformation. But most of what's happening in that vein where people are being accused of not being forthcoming about just how depraved they are, I think it's, it's usually not true. It's usually, I mean, usually depraved people are quite proud to be depraved and, they, and they're, you know, they're putting the swastikas, if not on their forehead, somewhere uh, if they really care about this ideology or whatever it is. So, yeah, I mean, just I, I, as one f whom it's been done to a lot, right, where someone is pretending to know what I think more than I do, and they're reading into my every utterance some tortured interpretation, we have to extend the principle of charity to people if we want to really find out what they think and, and counter bad ideas and promote good ones. And so I think that's a... I'm slow to pretend to read somebody's mind no matter how much I, I think I disagree with them. I, I, I'd want them to put their actual views on the table. So. I certainly think that there are a lot of people that don't know or are very innocently using terms in well-meaning ways that uh, they have no idea that, they're, that they've adopted these terms from people who've intentionally put them out there. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not going to paint with a broad brush and say that everybody who's you know, saying what people are calling dog whistles is, is meaning that. Um, because globalization is a real yeah. term. Yeah. Some people right? are just worried about globalization, whatever right. they think it is. No. It's about who says it, what their background is, what their track record is, and, and ultimately what their meaning ends up being. Well, first I, want, I wanted to, um, October marked five years of atheism, and I have you in large part to thank for that, so thank you very much. Well done. The question I'm about to ask you would have made absolutely no sense 10 years ago, and it, it may sound like I'm playing dumb, but I promise you I'm not. As concisely and precisely as you can, and this is up open to Christian in two, what is a neo-Nazi? Because here's well, the, yeah. let me elaborate on that just just one one little bit. I've heard people call Ben Shapiro a Nazi. That's obviously ridiculous. Yes. Miley Yiannopoulos, I've heard the Nazi still ridiculous. And then there's Jared Taylor, and you know people have an argument of whether or not he's qualifies as a neo Nazi. But I'll put it this way: I'm highly suspect that Jared Taylor has any swastika tattoos. Well, he, he might not. But I'm going to defer to Christian yeah. on this. What is a neo Nazi? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So under this umbrella of white supremacy, there are different factions. You've got the Klan, who has, you know, kind of uh, bastardized the Christian religion even further and, and, and uh, has made it their own. You've got skinheads, which are typically not very religious at all. Uh, and, and there are all these different factions underneath. So if we were, you know, the term neo-Nazi today has a different meaning to most people than it does to me, because to, to most people today, it's just a slur against anybody who's a racist, uh, which I think uh, absolutely takes the power away from the word Nazi, which has this very powerful, uh, distinct meaning, um, and, and carries a lot of weight with it, negative weight. You know, neo-Nazi is just like, you know, it's term, it's a new national socialist, somebody who believes in national socialism uh, as a political ideology, uh, but as neo, as new, as new, it's the new version of it. Um, so would you or would you not consider Jared Taylor a neo-Nazi? I would consider him a white supremacist, okay. like I would consider all of them white supremacists that fall under this banner, whether we're talking about alt-right, white nationalists, KKK skinheads. 
Um, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because there's so much nuance between all of those, but the, the common theme is white supremacy. To even break it down and, and, and you know, why micro-target, you know, and, and well, label... Well, I, I micro-target because of the whole punch a Nazi thing. Right. Because when, you, when we get ambiguous as to exactly what is a Nazi, and at the same time we have a parallel ethic that says it's okay to punch a Nazi, you yeah. seem to open a very well, dangerous door. We, we, we shouldn't have that ethic anyway, I, even yeah. for Nazis. <laughs> but no, 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 it's, yeah. it's, I, I agree completely, but it's just yeah. way too common, and it's, it's a very dangerous door, and I think oh, people yeah. really under-exaggerate that. Yes, yeah. it is. I had um, Richard Spencer in an auditorium just like this. Me, <laughs> just me and him. I could have destroyed him, and I did not. Oh, I'm sure. That is not. That is not how we change the world. I've never seen any positive action come out of violence. I agree. Ever. Well. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. On that note, I want to uh, thank Christian for coming. Thank Thanks, you. Can we just acknowledge the wonderful people up in the balconies yes. there who didn't get a chance to come down and ask a question? That is America up yeah. there. Thank you. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. You're uh, all America. And th thank you all for coming. It really, uh, I can't say this enough. It's an incredible privilege to be able to do this. And I can do it because you guys listen to the podcast and you come out to events like this. It's really an honor to speak with you. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.